Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do glorious things at a place called Freethink. I also do them very well because I am uh, uh, an overachiever, in fact. There, there are not many people who achieve things over me when I'm actually doing the same thing that they are. Not to say that people haven't achieved. You get where I'm going with this. I'm pretty good. Oh, God, I would, have, I would have is he, is he touching himself? No, both <laughs> hands above the table. That doesn't mean there are other hands in the room. Can I leave my, the, my own podcast? Can I turn it on? <laughs> I don't feel safe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Michael Moynihan, Vice News in the building. Matt Welch, Reason Magazine, editor-at-large, also in the building, and virtually, of course, because we're still doing this via Ansible Connection. I'm over in California. The two gentlemen are at different places in New York. I hope you both are safe and sound and feeling very good. I am newly vaccinated. Wow. Well, yeah, you're How about half, that? right? You're ha- so-called you get the first vaccination. One. Half, yeah. I just got the first one. So-called vaccination, of course, because what we know for a fact <laughs> is that it's April of 2021. Yeah. And it is not the case that most Americans have access to the vaccine. We, can't, we know that's true because Donald Trump told us that that would happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. And I was told by the Washington Post and various other publications that he was making those claims without evidence. That's literally the headline. Um, that Which, by the way, when you're, when you're with this conclusion, but when you're <laughs> speculating about how far the vaccine will have traveled in eight months, of course you're doing it without evidence. How do you do it with evidence? And especially when you're refuting <laughs> it's it too. It's just speculating. <laughs> but this is what we know. He wasn't. He wasn't merely speculating. He was almost certainly drawing on things that they had been discussing yes, yeah. behind closed doors yeah. because he was actually appraised of the progress of the vaccination efforts in much the same way that when he talked about weird craziness like putting light and bleach inside of your body to try to kill off the covid he was doing his damnedest to try and restate something that he'd heard someone say about some emerging technology and it came out sounding like gobbledygook was that dr eric bowling that he was getting that from dr jesse waters yeah, we, we've talked about this before. There was a, there was literally a, a light therapy device yes, that was, was being looked at by the FDA that might have been used to treat COVID. And again, when the president says, you know, the sunlight comes and it just kind of cleans that whole thing out. <laughs> what, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> in, either, in either case, it is kind of remarkable. Yes. Um, a year ago now, I did not think we would be at a place where we actually have vaccine availability across the country for essentially anyone who wants it regardless of comorbidities or other circumstances, that does not suggest that there aren't shortages in certain areas. But I mean, I made an appointment this morning, like two hours before leaving the house. And it turns out I didn't need an appointment at all. I don't know how many doses are still getting thrown away, but this is remarkable. I I feel pretty good. My arm is a little sore, um, but I did just want to heap a little bit of scorn on, on the various media outlets who are writing stories 
Um, not not because skepticism isn't appropriate in a circumstance like that. <laughs> here comes like, the, it's fine. Here comes the Nation of Islam stuff. But come on, man. <laughs> when, when, dude is, when dude manages to get things right, it's not merely a broken clock situation. Are you so, talking like, about Farrakhan or are you talking yeah. about Trump? He literally got, about Trump. He got I didn't vaccinated mention today and he's like congratulating Trump. Are you just going to call the Trump? I'm not congratulating Trump. Do you have like Trump I'm, did I'm it noting, as your sticker yeah, on your wallet? No, I am <laughs> noting the extraordinary circumstance. <laughs> And I'm also noting the remarkableness of the the failure on the part of many journalists. I mean, the, the headline in the New York Times, I believe this week, was that the vaccination schedule, like we've achieved this situation where virtually everyone has access to these vaccines and it is happening right on the schedule that Biden promised. Well, this is also the schedule <laughs> that Donald Trump <laughs> promised. So whatever, you know, that's fine. I get it. Um, yeah. You know, Mag- whatever, Mag- Camille. Anyways, <laughs> you know what? You know what? Maybe we will make yeah. America great again. Yeah. Um, okay. But I, I don't know. I can't be sure. But I do know that we have uh, a guest joining us today, and this is a hell of a week. This week, we, we didn't actually know that we would still have a country at this point. People were preparing for the absolute worst as they anticipated the conclusion of the Chauvin trial. And I think after about 11 hours of deliberation by the jury, they brought back a verdict. And we can talk about that verdict. I'm sure you know what it is. And we'll have things to say about that and have things to say about some of the other things that are happening in the country. But before we get there, we do have a guest today and we're going to talk about something else. Paul Rossi is a math teacher and writer formerly at, is it Grace Church High School in Manhattan? Is that right, Paul? Yes, Grace Church School High School. Now, this is this is a very elite academy. And Paul, the first time I spoke with you was maybe a week or so ago after reading a piece that was published at Barry Weiss's Common Sense sub Substack. This is something that you authored. Um, and the title of this speech was I Refuse to Stand By While My Students Are Indoctrinated. Uh, and it was a really potent piece. I know that... Um, Welch and Moynihan and I have read it. Yeah, and forwarded it to a bunch of people, too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it really alarmed a lot of my friends who were like, who, do, you know, aren't in this universe that, that we care about. And my a very good friend of mine in high school wrote back and he was like, this is true. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, this is pretty standard stuff, actually. It's pretty common. But uh, And to point out that it was also republished by the New York Post, which made it go mm-hmm. even further and wider. Yeah. Well, it, it alarmed some people. There was derision from other circles, and I, I suspect we can get to some of that as well. Um, but, Paul, I'm delighted you joined us to talk to us a little bit about your experience um, and to give us a little bit of additional context on where things currently stand with you. Um, I, I am actually a little bit reluctant to even take a shot at trying to encapsulate all of this. I, I believe... Um, in your piece, you suggested that you'd been at the school for about 10 years. You kind of changed careers and decided to go and teach. And over the course of the last several years, you've become increasingly concerned about a new development um, on mm. campus. Could you mm. talk to us about sort of what happened, what made you alarmed, what the timeline mm. was, and when you started to raise concerns within the school? There were a few things at the beginning, like we had to do a course all faculty had to complete a three-day workshop or, you know, two to three-day workshop called Undoing Racism. Um, and um, we were not successful. Um, 
in that endeavor. But, not, uh, not successful at undoing racism yes, overall. Right. Overall, okay. yes. And I don't know if you heard, but it didn't, sorry. didn't seem to work out wow. so well. But, um, what after, a failure. <laughs> yeah, it's on me, guys. What can I say? Um, the, um, in 2015, uh, either 2015 or 2016, I may be a little bit fuzzy on these dates, but um, the board came down from the board that it was no longer enough that we be diverse, equitable, and inclusive, and now we had to uh, commit to being anti-racist, and that was put in our mission statement. And um, there were, uh, from then, you know, from 2017-18, there were a series of, dab- they started to dabble with different types of training and introducing this new concept to the faculty, anti-racism, and so on. And from the beginning, I was very cautious about it because racism um, is, a, is, a, is a concept which has undergone significant creep, you know, in the past, past decade. And what, how can you be anti-something which is somewhat, you know, diffuse depending on who you speak to, you know, and how do you adjudicate what you're going to be against? If some people believe the American flag is racist, yes. there's all, there's systemic racism, institutional racism, historical racism. And so where do you... It's a subjective, subjective concept. Right. And so, you know, it seems that that would, the way it would play out would be somewhat, it, w- it could lead to witch hunts, essentially. And um, as anti-racist, you have to appeal to anyone who raised the alarm that something was racist, you'd have to immediately start to condemn it. And, you know, it did play out that way, but it just got gradually more focused on training the faculty, professional development, and then, you know, rolling things out in the curriculum and then having special workshops until it just became extremely oppressive, in my view, for stifling of viewpoint diversity and harmful to the student psychology. Paul, if you ask them for, and it's a completely reasonable and sensible question, for some sort of broad definition of what racism is, what the thing that you're supposed to be anti is. Did you get a response? Did someone try to give you a kind of capsule definition of what they believed racism to be? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was taken a priori that we were a racist society. That is, racism is embedded in the discourse of all human relations in the country. The metaphor they'd use to describe it is, you know, the fish doesn't know that it's in a, a fishbowl. So, you, you know, it's, it's the water that we're breathing. It's literally this sort of, this ether of phlogiston or, you know, whatever the, they wouldn't use those words, but they're ever present and they're illuminated like beads on a string incidents, which reify the presence of this, this force. So it's you everything. Know, yeah, it's pretty much, literally, it's, <laughs> literally everything. And, and to question the reality is to try to gaslight someone that it's not there. Mm-hmm. You use the word oppressive to describe the way that that felt upon you. You also used in your essay, which was one of two or three most alarming things to my eyes reading it, um, that they kind of split you up, students and faculty, at least for the purposes of exercises, into two categories. One was oppressed and one was the oppressors. Did it, you really were in a group, like a corner? Oh, this is yeah. the oppressors. Can you talk about? No, how, like, no, I, I have to how be. How the I have hell to be did clear. that go down? Yeah, no, we, we, it's never. It wasn't. It was never that literal. Okay, and good. so if I gave that, if they gave that impression, then I, I, um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, what I would say is that um, different affinity groups were sort of pros- were, were created, and then their intersectional positioning, you know, and their, and their identity is framed, was very much framed in 
the impact of society upon them in various ways. So like, you know, you would be, you would have these things working against you, but then you would also be insensitive to other groups. And so it was just like a combination. It's a more nuanced intersectional idea of oppressor and oppressed, but they didn't literally say like, you're oppressed and you're, but, you're an but oppressor. There were segregated meetings or meetings among yeah. gr- like groups in yes, that context. So, you Can know, you sort of we, talk about how that ha- worked? Yeah. We would have segregated, segregated meetings became more frequent. Some of them were optional. Segregated by what? By race. So we would have okay. BIPOC meetings. We would have white ally meetings. We would have, we had, I think we have, I think we have 18 different affinity groups um, um, on various gender, sexual orientation and, you know, sexual expression categories or gender identification categories. Uh, and, we have, um, you know, our. It's a tradition at the school that we have a Martin Luther King Day event. You know, where, where, you know, historically the kids will walk to Union Square and sing "We Shall Overcome," and it's actually, it's actually, you know, in the first years of the school, it really is like quite touching because you know the kids sure. go there. But it turned into something a lot more crazy and and weird as it got more sort of CRT, critical race theory influenced. And so we started to have these seminars that were about allyship, historical racism in the country. You know, some of them were good, but a a lot of them seemed to be arcane college level seminars. And in these seminars, kids were sort of challenged to be hyper aware of oppressive things and their racial qualities and really the problem became very acute i think when we, they started to develop a community and diversity curriculum that explicitly guided students as early as you know 6th grade to identify primarily as their race so this really started to trouble me because you know race is to my mind and and to my understanding it is fundamentally a falsehood you know racism exists but race is a lie. And so they're asking kids to identify with a lie simply because um, they're viewed that way by other people. And you wouldn't do that with other things, right? If somebody thought something about you, you wouldn't simply say, you wouldn't teach a child, well, that person thinks that's what who you are, so that's who you actually are. That would seem wow. like kind of weird. Yeah. Or, or, you know, because, other, because all these people think this about you, you should introject that into your essence as your identity. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm actually distinctly remembering when Barack Obama was running for office, not to make this explicitly political, but whatever, it happened. And someone asks him during a campaign event, or they said, my friends tell me that you are black, but I've been telling them that you're, you're biracial because I know that you have a, a father from Africa and a white mom. And he says, well, no, no, I'm so glad you asked that question because I want to have an opportunity to share this. I am generally regarded as black. So I self-identify that way. And I'm very proud of that. Considering the origins of the concept of race, which I think the way Barbara Fields describes it and which I've, I've come to embrace is that racism invents race. And all of it is part of an ideology that we invent and reinvent all the time throughout the course of our lives, whether we're consciously aware of it or not, by not recognizing it for the ideology that it is. And there's a sense in which someone like me, who is determined to move beyond the concept in as many contexts as possible, and the anti-racists kind of agree. 
I agree that race is kind of everywhere. But my perception is that we are insisting on keeping it that way in some respects by not acknowledging it for what it is. And from their perspective, everything is racist and white supremacy is the animating force of all the things. But if that's the case, then it does seem that it would be an indictment of anti-racism and critical race theory and all the rest mm -hmm. of the fruits of their project as well, which the limitations of the tautological thought um, that goes into all of this stuff just and, never seem to rise to the surface. It shouldn't surprise anybody that there's always a moment in history, and you can find a number of these, where sort of black nationalist organ organizations try to make common cause with white nationalist organizations because they say we have the same goal. We see this actually with NOI, with Nation of Islam, quite a bit. So it doesn't surprise mm. me in some way that you are a teacher at the George Wallace School for Education in Manhattan. <laughs> it's like, I mean, this kind of segregation, it's, it's a segregationist instinct. It's like you, mm -hmm. our meetings are racially segregated. I'm going to bring it down because Camille made a very uh, smart point. I'm going to make it an, not even really a point, but a sort of dumb statement. You're a math teacher, <laughs> right? Let's yeah. all remember that. You're a math teacher. That's Why right. Why on earth... Do you have people sort of calling you into meetings, trying to solve the racial issues of New York, <laughs> of your school, of America, of the world? You're a math teacher. Yes, Doesn't that strike you as odd? Yes, but there's a different there's a different philosophy in in uh, you know which is which is actually quite fairly common among independent schools is that as a member of a community, you're expected to do more than simply teach your subject. You're expected to teach the whole child, and so they have all of these other activities that you're engaged with, you, they give they give me an advisory. So maybe eight to 10 students that I sort of shepherd through the four years of, you know, their, their journey through the high school, help them with, you know, problems or help them with, with social issues or academic issues. And then also teaching, um, you know, electives or community life classes, um, things like, um, you know, sex and gender, or, um, you know, inequality in and inequities, um, an economics class, which folks focus primarily on, you know, uh, differences in wealth and income instead of teach, you know, which is important. But can we learn about what a market is and what, how, do you, how are prices set? Things that are pretty important. No, it too. has to be grim. Um, Everything yeah. has to be grim. It has to be grim economics, has to be grim look at gender, has to be grim look at America. And I mean, how do, you know, and I'll throw this back to, to the lads, but I'll, I'll say, I'll ask this question first. How do the students react to this? I mean, we've been talking a lot about this stuff, and there's been a lot of these, like, you know, the guy at Brearley, um, Barry Weiss wrote a very good piece about kind of elite uh, schools and, and some of these problems that are engulfing them. Um, most to do with administrators and teachers and everything. How, you know, Dalton, another big one, how are the students actually dealing with? I, I mean, are they kind of thinking this stuff is a bit crazy or are, are they kind of, you know, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid? I think there's a significant number of, there's a lot of preference falsification going on. There's a lot of, you know, saying what's, you know, what they think there's, people are supposed to hear. Um, but there are true believers, you know, I would say, you know, I, I don't, it's hard to tell um, because, um, but I do have, you know, people that I speak to, students that I, that, you know, I'm close with and, and I've asked them this question, you know, what percent do you think are preference falsifying? Uh, what percent are true believers? And, you know, I've heard that over 50% of the boys are just preference falsifying. 
just trying to make mm. it through. Um, the girls, is, there's a significant gender gap. It seems to be that, you know, up to 80% of the girls are true believers in some sense. Um, but, um, you know, and that, you know, that also extends to, you know, the black kids too. I think many, some of them are also preference falsifying. Um, also some Latino kids because, you know, they, I think what I've noticed is the more, the kids with a more of a religious background or a different sort of morality framework for morality will resist mm. it longer or, mm. or, you know, they will simply just stay quiet and just try to make it through. Um, but again, silence itself is something that is seen as resistant and called out. You know, we need to hear from you. Please turn on your camera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and, and when the pandemic hit, it takes on a sick veneer because you've got all these screens and all these, like it's disrespectful wow. to leave your screen up please turn on your screen and like you you know you must you know we want we need to hear from you and there's a lot of pressure to to speak and to articulate mm-hmm. but then also if you are not believed you're attacked not attacked but you are challenged to be for your sincerity so you don't want to be guilty of optical allyship and Wait, that, then that happens. That, yeah, that they, happens. They if question, you say something, someone will say that doesn't sound sincere. Well, they won't enough. challenge it, at, but they'll say, you know, are, are you someone that just posts a, something on their Facebook and doesn't actually support, you know, BIPOC students? You need to do more. You know, you need to, um, um, you know, call out racism. And when again, it what's the what's the age span of students at this school? Uh, well, I only teach high school, uh, so right. I, you know, I think our our span is sort of fourteen to. 14 to 18, 19. So 14 to 18-year-olds are being challenged yeah. of whether their Facebook statements are sincere. Um, yeah, optical al- and also white allyship. saviorism. White saviorism this year was came up in a you know, diversity council, something that we I need want to think to, about. And I want need to, to, really- uh, to say, uh, just to, to Moynihan's point, and we may get in, into it later, but uh, the principal of my um, 12-year-old's uh, middle school sent a, a, a very interesting email today about the Derek Chauvin trial and a bunch of other things besides. Um, and my wife who's listening to this podcast uh, had the comment of, um, I don't know, maybe teach them math. <laughs> to f- how to find Russia on a map. Can we do that too? <laughs> because every single thing, like the, the, the MAGA riots and uh, the Capitol, uh, there's just, you know, the, it's the principal, it's the district superintendent, it's the local communicati- community education council are all weighing in, in many cases, uh, in a way that, how to put this gently, um, um, sort of lacks a certain nuance and has a certain predictability to it. And you kind of wish that they would teach math. But I want to get back to the, the the chronological progression here. So this is something you've noticed, you know, five years or so. Presumably it's getting more uh, advanced and extreme once we go into anti-racism. We've all experienced what the last year, in fact, George Floyd has a lot to do with it. This is that started the racial reckoning, or what do you call it, uh, Camille? The racial retrogression. Racial, racial retrogression is um, the appropriate term. It's the, the only appropriate sane term. term. Um, yeah. So, uh, what are the major signposts, moments, flashing red signs that get you to a point where you're like, you know what? It's going to help my career writing on Barry Weiss's Substack <laughs> about how my <laughs> boss <laughs> is jackass. Well, um, it. None of this would have happened if I hadn't if I hadn't sort of had a bit of a breaking point at a meeting on February twenty fourth, uh, 
there was an intercession week. Uh, well, during the pandemic, we have these whole weeks where there are no there are no academic classes, and we focus on you know major issues for the country or the globe. We had an intercession week where it's focused on racial literacy. We, we just had a week on climate, but during this, wow. you know, this one on um, even even in math class. No, no, no. It's it's all the classes are canceled. Like my or not canceled, but they're just. They're just have a whole week yeah. of, of seminars and speakers that are focused uh-huh. around these global issues of importance. Um, no, you know, I don't know that we said this, and, and this is this becomes important. This is a fifty-five thousand dollar a year school. Fifty-seven, I, I think that's where the tuition <laughs> the is at, Sorry. but somewhere between fifty and sixty. This yeah. is a this is an elite institution. You, yeah. you guys are feeding into some of the the best colleges and universities in the world, and I I, I wince when I use the word best yeah. because yeah. yeah. Well, but, you know, the product okay. is the student, right? The the whole concept of the high school before it opened was that we were going to create students that had a sense of ethical, global consciousness that, you know, would sort of, they'd be woke weaned. So when they got to the universities, they'd be, they'd be make a nice package, you know, so it'd be like, oh yeah, they're, they're grace kids. Well, you know, they're going to, they're going to be ready to integrate with, you know, the social consciousness of our right. school. Um, so, and there are sort of two, if you think of an independent school, like kind of an engine. So for uh-huh. that engine to function, you have to have you know, different inputs, right? So uh, here you have, if you just imagine two very broad buckets, okay? So you have one one feeder for the engine, which is wealthy parents with money. They can build the endowment and they can pay for financial aid for the other group, which is, the, you know, under-resourced kids that are coming from poorer parts of town. And then they provide the diversity, right? So the idea is like, you, you have the input of the sort of wealthier kids and then the other kids and then the, they provide the diversity and then the wealthy kids provide the money and then it actually, everyone, everyone kind of wins, right? Because the incentives make sense. But in order for the whole thing to still move forward, you have to have this kind of, create this culture where these kids can coexist. Uh, and, you know, that's very important that they, they obsess about the community and they speak of the community as this, really important thing. And so I, I see it as kind of a system in itself. It's like a microcosm. Uh, and, you know, if any one of the parts fails, then the, the, the whole engine is going gonna, is gonna to break down. Um, so, so, for example, like if, if they push the anti-racism too hard, as we're seeing now, so the wealthy parents are going to start to pull out their money and the whole thing crashes, right? But if there's too much insensitivity, well, then, you know, with, even despite the, the incentives of the minority students and parents to send their kids to these predominantly white schools, they're going to feel unwelcome and then they're going to they're gonna pull out and then go somewhere else. So it really is kind of a, a, war, a very uh, strange um, thing but you know but the but the but the kinds of ideas that they're pushing are really toxic and really don't help and they make the whole thing worse in my opinion so back to back to this february you're having another one of these weeks where you Mm -hmm. don't teach and you just seminar about the problems on the continuing crisis uh what happens at the meetings this seminar that sends you to the brink of madness (laughs) journey into the darkness. Okay. So I, uh, this was a meeting supposed to be about self-care. Okay. So this is a pandemic. This meeting is supposed to be to help children cope with not being able to see each other, 
having to do work at, you know, uh, at home, online, zooming in, all of this stuff. And up comes, um, after some meditative brain softening exercises, up comes the <laughs> white supremacy culture slide, uh, which I've sent to you guys ahead of time. I don't know if you can pull it up and take a look at it, but it's, it's a juicy one because on this slide are really, really horrible things like objectivity, hmm. individualism, hmm. Um, a right to comfort. A right to comfort comfort. is associated with white supremacy in a meeting ostensibly designed to help kids with their self-care. Do they also have the worship of the written word on that yes, one? Worship of the yeah, written yeah, yeah. word. Yeah. Right. right. Because most, it's so white. Most white supremacists, by the way, are illiterate. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know. Yeah. But they course, also have either course, or thinking. Yeah. Sorry, man. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just going to say the supposition with, with all of these things being that, that the lowly Negro mm. in various other BIPOCs, but particularly the lowly Negro, is incapable of these various things. The, the, the Negro culture is not a literate culture. So one can't expect them to master and understand the classics. It's the reason why Howard needs to dismantle its classics department and send the books elsewhere. The the degree to which this the degree to which this fuckery is an extension of like the most deplorable segregationist racist claptrap is just so extraordinary to me. To to the to the extent that it at times just like I am completely baffled that anyone has been taken in by this tribe, but even more baffled that so many that this is being taught and that this is being embraced at so many different institutions, and and it's the academies in particular that I just find that I find like it particularly mystifying. Like all of these people with these elite educations not doing any sort of rigorous thinking about this material or at a minimum, the best case scenario here is they all know that it's kind of bullshit, but they're keeping their heads down and going along with it anyways. And so, I mean, you've got to tell me, Paul, like, are you, are you alone in this? You, you mentioned that you sort of raised concern about this, this document and you were getting there, but the, what what is the well, as I response found, you know, from I, the rest I, of the faculty? I, I I've had oh by the way this meeting was segregated by the way this was a whites only meeting. right this yeah, is okay. whites only now whites the, only whites identified yeah and, 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 and there's a very there's a really interesting like, thing going on with the, with the with the suffix on that white identified thing right because sometimes it's white identifying and sometimes it's white identified and and, and it's a nuanced thing and they they play with it very very subtly but it mm-hmm. means one means one thing and one means slightly different. But anyway, right. I'll go back to the one, one is one is an indictment, though, right? Because if you don't embrace and understand your whiteness and right. embody it fully, and then also <laughs> embrace your guilt and culpability as yes. a, as a member Simplicity. of the white race, as a yes. member of the white population or identity group, whatever they want to call it, then Man, you're monstrous. So hard yeah. to so you're identified, but you haven't identified. <laughs> right, you're, so you're first, not identifying first, before you've come to consciousness. You're identified. Once yeah. you've absorbed it and once you have drunk the Kool-Aid, then you're identifying. Yeah. This is some Scientology right. feeding shit. This is shit. a cult. Yeah. This is a serious <laughs> cult. Jesus. I mean, yes, this is, I wow. 
I need I need Paul Haggis to write like a three thousand uh, word uh, essay about this right now. Well, you know, uh, what is it? What is it? Thetans? Is it thetans are yeah, the things thetans. that you're. Those are sort of yeah, your yeah. unconscious biases, right? I mean, you gotta you gotta yeah, purge your thetans, and you need to go to an expert to tell you where the thetans are. Right, and that's the person. Yeah. That's the diversocrat who will tell you. Yeah, and they'll run the they'll run the seminar. You know, the they last the only thing they don't have is an e meter. You know, they, they, they need just, the e meter. Right, they need that <laughs> machine. <laughs> and tell me where my whiteness is. Tell yeah. me where it is. You know? but, to, but Paul, to Camille's oh point, are, are you you know alone in this? I mean, when we've been doing this podcast for a long time, and we get people from all over the place, Hollywood people, all, all you know, I mean, military, you know, military people, their own businesses. it is you know, people would be like, oh yeah, I'm so glad that you guys are saying these sort of very normal things that almost everyone in America believes I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, are you getting that from inside the school? Or are there people that are saying like, hey, thanks? You know, sure. I, but it's all one-on-one. You yeah. Know, it's all people like, I would, and people will come up to me and say, I won't go as far as you will. Yeah. But, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I've been out to my colleagues just because, you know, I've, I've been grumbling into my beard until I got to this moment where I, I realized that the kids were really frozen and not able to articulate things and it's just doing them harm that they can't speak freely. So in this meeting, there were 200 kids and maybe 30 colleagues. And so when the facilitator started to show the slide and everyone sort of saying, yes, this is wonderful. This is interesting. She said, well, this may call, this may call up some white feelings for many of you. And I just said, what is a white feeling? It's, what, said, it's, what, it's what Rick Astley has. I mean, what, what is, is a, a feeling? white, white feeling? <laughs> well, that, it's actually really fascinating because, okay, just as a, as a parlor game, just pick a noun, okay? Just pick a noun, like any noun, doesn't matter. Egg. Okay, well, well something eggs. that isn't already white. Unconscious. Eggs are just white. Kiwi. 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 Okay, a white yeah. kiwi. What is a white kiwi when I say white kiwi, mm-hmm. what calls to mind? Uh, white like person who's noble and just, <laughs> yeah. strong. Yeah. Right? How would you eat? How would you eat the kiwi? It's maybe it's the process of how you would eat the kiwi. Very right? aggressively. So, so, very right? white. So anything can be white, right? Anything can embody whiteness in one form or another. So I. So then I was told, well, it's are you? You know, it's when people who are white have feelings. Mm-hmm. I was like. If I have a feeling, if I have a feeling while I'm driving, is it a driving feeling? If I have a feeling of hunger, is that a driving? I mean, it's white it hunger. Just doesn't make sense. Yeah, white, <laughs> white hunger. Anyway, the facilitator was it was actually quite cordial. She later said in a, in a later meeting she didn't feel like it was you know it was asked in a really brutish or aggressive way or anything. Um, but so what if it was? I mean, there's there, yeah. there's this kind of thing now where we are patting you on the back and everyone's saying this guy who's spoken out for just disagreeing with the obviously insane pedagogy of your school. 90% of the people in the U.S. picked at random would be like, this stuff is kind of crazy, white yeah. feelings, etc., but we're at a point where there is a certain amount of bravery required just to say, I don't agree with this. Do you get that sense at school that there is that kind of, and I don't want you to be quoting this as my me saying this word, not you, that this kind of Stalinism there, that one must agree with mm-hmm. this. And if you do disagree, keep it to yourself. 
And when you do disagree, we're going to call you a reactionary in public and in private, we'll probably agree with you. But I mean, mm. it, 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 went, it wasn't like that in 2012 when you started, was it? No, no, it really wasn't. Um, and when they when they started to roll out the the anti-racist mission, they started with things that were pretty benign. Like they would say, well, what does anti-racism mean to you? You know, and and I was like, well, it means not being racist. It means not it means judging people by the content of their character. You know, it means treating people as, you know, maybe not even judging them. Maybe just treating people as, uh, you know, beings that have different backgrounds, but we can come to understand each other and and the individual level and not making assumptions about people based on groups and stuff like that. But, you know, they, they would say like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. As if like it was some unusual way to look at the world. <laughs> and then they started, you know, then they, then yeah. they crowded out the pyramid of white supremacy or the pyramid of racism. I think they hadn't really mm-hmm. caught on to white supremacy yet, but racism. And on this pyramid, there were various layers. And at the top, the eye of the pyramid were, was genocide. And so everything, yeah. when you do that, everything is framed in context of genocide. And there were really, there were things on there like there were two sides to every story, you know, being apolitical, uh, things that were next to each other that were contradictory, like, you know, not believing POC, but saying my black friend says, right? So what are you supposed to do with that? Like things that were Democratic Party platform positions or, or, or you know, Things that were Republican Party platform, like maybe locally sourced schools, things, this grab bag, and I'm supposed to take this thing and put it in front of 14-year-olds and say, what do you think of this? And I said, I said no to that. I said, no, I won't do it. And they were like, okay, we're not going to make you do it. Maybe you need, you know, maybe you need some time. We have professional development opportunities. You know, we can help you. We can help you get to the point where, you know, there's, it takes work. You know, we've done a lot of work. You know, that's what they do. They say, well, you know, they frame your ignorance in a way that is, they frame your objections as ignorance, essentially, and they will help you through, you know, the process as a teacher so you can gain the skill to address these things effectively in front of children. Moynihan referenced the totalitarian sense, which again is his word, not yours, uh, but it's also mine. And uh, this, which gets to the moment that I found the most creepy in your story, which is after you had stuck your neck out, this stuff got leaked out. It was supposed to be a semi-confidential-ish meeting, got leaked out, you were reprimanded, and please try to explain what this was like, that students were told that you did a bad thing, like Mm -hmm. in a public way. So that they would understand and also you would understand. Can this you, is what sticks act, out to everyone in that piece. Yeah. Can you sure. describe yeah, yeah. what specifically that was? Yes, it was a, you know, I, I'd love to actually call it up here. Um, it was a, about a page long. It took about, you know, seven minutes to read. And it talked about, you know, the events of Wednesday. I mean, they were already referring to this meeting <laughs> as like, like they was 9-11 or something like was this, like they, was this you reading after they drugged you and you were like a blindfold <laughs> yes. and you're in a cast no, or you're no, blinking no, they, to the camera? This was the day that Paul disagreed. Very bad day. American <laughs> imperialism, yeah. not good. Oh well, they had to have meetings about processing the meeting and those were segregated too. So there were segregated what? meetings that about processing how people felt about what I did in the meeting. I mean, in, the, in a way, it wasn't just me. By the way, I, just to go back a little bit, it wasn't just me that many. Once I started asking questions, other kids started asking questions. Like there was, and I was like 
this is amazing. Like kids were saying, well, I don't, I don't think I'm ignorant. Other kids. Well, other kids and faculty. Okay. Other, both, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, you know, the woman, the dean, you know, one of the deans that called the meeting said, like, even though we disagree with Paul, we, you know, I think this meeting is much more productive because he's here and saying these things. So there were faculty members that said, you know, I don't like to be reduced to my race. There were kids that were saying, I don't think I'm ignorant just because I'm white. You know, so it was a re- it was like a breakout. It was like like a burbling of all of this stuff started coming out. And I, I was frankly a little proud of myself. Like I kind of patted myself mm-hmm. on the back. And, you know, I was adding some stuff in chat. Like, you know, people were talking stuff about capitalism. And I said, well, you know, I think capitalism is anti-racist because of you know, the <laughs> tremendous things it's done for, for the globe. And yeah. for, for You're poverty really pushing and, it, Paul. Yeah, yeah, I know, <laughs> right? Taking, going out on a limb. But, and then, you know, one of the, I think the thing that really caused the most controversy was that I said, you know, in the meeting, I said, well, I don't identify as white. Um, to what extent must I identify with society's uh, opinions about me? And this was like, I think this was the sort of, you know, this was the bomb that I really got punished for. Because mm-hmm. when you question that, that really is the linchpin of the entire House of Cards. If Language. that goes, everything goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Paul, come on. You've <laughs> apparently been failing all of your brainwashing I'll, I'll, classes. I'll allow it. I'll, I'll allow it. You play the rules of the game here. But, but what about the... But, okay. You know, so, yeah. so they have to read in this kind of Maoist uh, way. That people are reading, um, you know, something that they didn't write, right? This is something that comes from. Yeah, this is comes from the head of school. They crafted this whole thing at the administrative. And level then they make teachers the read it to, to their read. students. Yeah, so all of the advisors at ten thirty on this day, I mean, I think oh it was Tuesday, God. the following day, like you they will all read bounce this to your the advisory. red ball at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, I remember being in my office and being like, "This is going to be, this is crazy," and because they, I couldn't obviously read it to my own advisory, so someone had to read it to them for me. So this oh, person. Wow. You know, the the dean takes over and reads the statement to them. I think it was the dean. I'm not sure who they got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just was like, I'm, I got to go to the bathroom. So as I'm walking to the bathroom, I'm I'm hearing emanating from every classroom. You know, there there was a teacher, a teacher who questioned, uh, or I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but they didn't name me, but it was clear it was it was about me, and everybody knew it was me. That's so they kind of made me the scapegoat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is like race is a social construct. However, the legacy of racism in the 400 years have been so you know destructive and and you know horrible that we need to undo the damage that has been done. We need to undo racism, and it was clearly designed to address my particular statement. Which I, I when I put it in the chat, it was like I did it as a hypothetical. By address, you mean refute? Actually, yeah, refute. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know sort of gather the troops around the, tr- the, the truth, which is, right. you know, um, uh, so, you know, when I, when I made that comment, I was thinking when I did it, like I was trying to do it as a hypothetical, but then afterwards I thought, no, actually, I don't think it's hypothetical, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, I couldn't really I mean, it strikes that, me but, that they don't have a lot of confidence in their own theories if somebody chimes in and says, hey, I kind of disagree yeah. with this. But well, they have to produce like mimeographed sheets for everyone to read about the truth. Um, yeah. or, or they have supreme confidence in their theory because their theory permits them to shut down 
dissent and disagreement because words are violence and mm. these sentiments that run contrary to their sentiments are actively racist, which means they're harmful, which means that they are doing violence to the institution. So they, they shut everyone up. I think Paul's story actually illustrates just how potent a, a perspective and or at least approach this is because there's no one else publicly talking about this with a few exceptions, it seems. But even there, um, I saw a, a write-up about a parent of a former student um, who had talked to a journalist that don't remember which publication this was. Maybe you do, Paul. But I mean, there, there's very few people who mm -hmm. are publicly confronting this. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's true. Do you expect to keep your job? Well, I'm, I would put myself in the all but fired bucket at this point. But why haven't you been fired? So I, I it's funny. I, I, I don't know. What, is, um, what does that mean, Paul? Could you describe that? Because no one will have any sense what that means. They took away my, they started by taking away my advisory. Um, then they took away my classes. So I have no, I have no two teaching duties anymore at this point. I have, mm -hmm. My contract ends in, at the end of August. They, they offered to me for the fourth quarter of the school year to participate on a subcommittee of the Institutional Culture Committee. It really is Soviet, isn't it? Where I would, <laughs> you know, I, I, would, I would be brought into the fold and, you know, my, my concerns would be shared with the assistant head of school and I could, sure. be, I could, I could be sort of co-opted into this thing. Um, but really, it's, it really sounded like a rubber room situation. Mm -hmm. They're going to isolate me in this place. They're gonna, they, they'll be able to say, oh, we brought Rossi back in and he's helping us. And then they can just you know, ignore me or put me in the closet. One of the, one of the reasons people say that words are violence, I mean, there's never, you know, incites any studies or anything like that. But I mean, it's a pretty obvious uh, thing. And, and why people say this is because otherwise you don't want to be the person that says, well, I don't agree with free speech. I don't agree with, you know, open debate. So you can shut down debate because you're saying, well, I'm actually preventing harm from being caused. So I'm wondering what they, as a, an educational institution, are saying when they're basically firing you, basically rubber rooming you. Because, you know, to anyone who's paying even a half bit of attention to this, it's because of your opinions, right? I mean, you, yeah. and it's not, they can say because you went out publicly, but, but that doesn't hold a lot of water when you see, you know, what they've done, right? And the, you know, conversations you have that have been leaked, et cetera. But so is there, are they making an argument for why they're treating you this way? They're claiming that the students feel unsafe in my classes. Um, Have you beaten any students recently? Have you attacked them physically? No. Okay. No, well. I haven't. I, so, no. this, so, so why would they feel unsafe? Just for the people well, who don't understand this language. My views challenge you know, the framework of identity, I think, is what's going on here. But it's never actually explained. So I, I actually asked multiple times... Tell me how my questions harm someone. Like, what's the causal chain between me asking the question, it getting out of the meeting, other people hearing it and feeling harm? Like, what is going on? And they, ne they never answered my question. So really, it's speculation on my part. But I think it is, it is that I, the importance of identity, particular black identity, requires white people to acknowledge their own complicity and therefore their own white identity. So me talking about my identity is actually harmful to a black student because it means that I am somehow 
denying my complicity in racist structures, which means that they got, there's no one you know who can redress the harm. Jeez. So it's like I'm opting out of the equation. I think that's the real that's the real harm there. Is it? The school should be shut down, and the reason it should be shut down is because they're failing if they believe that their students this long in that, this school hear a question and cannot deal with it, and they feel harmed. They are the problem. If that's the way students are reacting to a question, the entire purpose of school is to prepare kids for this type of thing, for debate, for open inquiry, for realizing that things are never solved, and we should be asking the questions to falsify them at all times. They are failing if they believe that your just fairly basic questions are kids think they're in danger uh, because of it, I, do, I don't suspect they do. I suspect they're making that up. But if they actually do, that they've done a grievous harm to their own students. Although the anti-racist response to that is that's a very white perspective for you to have. And you can't imagine what it's like <laughs> to be a black person in a society that is fundamentally anti-black and is seeking to destroy and undermine black people at every turn where police are unleashed on them to kill and maim them, where they're financially disadvantaged, where there are all of these signals, even in the language. If they're fortunate enough to learn programming, unfortunately for them, they'll be reminded of slavery and mastery and white supremacy and domination. Like You can't imagine what that's like. And that's why these poor black students can't possibly rise. And the evidence, the proof of the truth of their claims are the persistent disparities that exist in academia and in various other areas. Well, this, this, will, this will certainly solve all those disparities, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Give it 10, 15 years, and then they'll be like, okay, yeah, we yeah. were wrong, and, and we're going to, you know, okay. Anyway. <sighs> well. I'm sorry to depress you guys. God, it's really depressing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating. What, what's especially frustrating is that I know that some of the people who have read this story are critics and the critics have said, well, why does anyone care what's happening at elite institutions? Look at, look at Barry Weiss making a fortune on Substack, publishing these racist teachers who have a problem with people paying attention to racism in their schools. Just these elite institutions. What, what a stupid thing. You know, elite institutions have an ability to kind of fetishize things and be a bit, a bit strange. But this doesn't matter. This isn't important. This doesn't have consequence. Of course, what that ignores is that many of the same things are happening in classrooms across the country that are not elite. Like I saw today, I think it was Chris Rufo over at Manhattan Institute was talking about something very similar that's taking place in Philadelphia schools in response to students who perhaps aren't even asking questions about the verdict in the Chauvin trial yesterday, but prompting the teachers to ask kids who are K through second grade what do you think about the trial? And the same pyramid of hate that you referred to, Paul, was included in this package that was delivered to these teachers. And what's really galling isn't just that it's racist. And I don't mean neo-racist. I mean explicitly racist in the sense that it is suggesting that these black children are inferior is that this is a school system where like 80% of the students in certain schools can't do basic reading comprehension. They are failing all of the standardized testing with respect to like English and math. These institutions have utterly failed. 
And now they've just shifted goalposts altogether. And they'll just talk about the depravity of America and the the lowly failed state of the black man and the awfulness of whites because of the station that they've put them in. And it, this has consequences. Yeah. Um, no, the fact, you know, it, this is not an independent school. This is not a hothouse flower problem in the greenhouse of, you know, New York independent schools. This is happening, like you said, all over the country. I am optimistic since I've been volunteering with FAIR, uh, which Camila's uh, you're on the board, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I've been working as the outreach coordinator for Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, uh, Virginia. And so many of the volunteers I talk to, their story is sort of very recent coming to awareness of these things, which gives me hope that there is some kind of groundswell nationally about this. So many people say, you know, a year ago, I didn't have any idea what this was. But during the pandemic, on Zoom, I saw the things that they were pushing on my child. And it really disturbed me. And I want to do something. I want to help. So the pandemic, with all of its drawbacks, may have the unintended consequence of actually being a boon to bring the awareness of this stuff to parents. And I think that if the parents agitating for smart, effective charter schooling or different alternatives. Uh, there are lots of ideas about school choice. You know, I, I personally, I think it's, it's definitely important and good. But finding and, and awakening parents to take back school boards, and this is going to be a, like a house-to-house struggle, like school district by school district, trying to get back a sane curriculum to teach our kids. But what's the template here? Because obviously you were at a school, you knew that faculty, you knew the leadership, you knew many of the students, and presumably you knew some of their parents. Mm -hmm. There's no coalition there, it sounds like. Or is there? Is that something that you're trying to cultivate? Because you mentioned that you're working in other institutions. Like, what what is the actual strategy to move beyond, you know, what is, frankly, like a really depressing sad story about what happened to you, but that the conclusion of which is something rather embarrassing for the school, especially Mm -hmm. the newly released audio of uh, a senior leader at the school, essentially echoing the same concerns that you did, you have, like what happens? Well, you know, bring, bring it to light. I mean, um, lift up the rock so we can see, you know, I think so many parents don't know what their money is getting them. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't know that this is going on or they think they hear the pretty words like diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, all these things are things people want. And so they don't know that the goal is quality of outcome, that there are agendas afoot, that it's about, there, there's really not a lot of attention to truth. Truth is just a tool. Words are tools to tinker with society and make, make the high places low and the low places high. Um, mm. there, there are ideologues in these diversocrat positions and they, you know, just, I've sat with them. I've talked to them for an hour, an hour to just understand what they want and that's what they want. And that's what, they have an agenda for society, for, for our society as a whole. And uh, to, to understand it, to call it out, they want to make anyone who questions it feel immoral or ignorant. So you just have to stay in there and not take the bait and react 
and keep your self-control and simply question what they mean by these terms until it becomes clear. And parents need to do that, and anyone who cares about what's being taught to their kids need to do that. And that, will, that is just going to have to be the work that, that needs to be done. Um, I also think there's some strategic things that can be done. For example, with independent schools, there are these accrediting agencies, the you know, NICE ACE in New York, ACNE in New England. And you know, these entities, they connect all of the schools and they are pushing all this stuff through there and they run training programs that are very lucrative. And there are people that are working those training programs and they, go, they hop from school to school. And so there's also organizations that need to be understood and how they're operating in the market, like um, CARL, C-A-R-L-E, is a very important one. Um, the Critical Analysis of Race and Learning and Education. They are the folks that took our, our board of trustees on a retreat in 2015 and actually got everybody to sign on to anti-racism. Pollyanna Inc., they develop a racial literacy curriculum that we just we adopted from K through 8. Pollyanna Inc. Perception Inc. Institute, <laughs> perception.org. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a scary one. If you look into those, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. I'm sorry, so what? Are, the People's Institute? Yes, the People's, the people's <laughs> Institute for Survival almost, and Beyond. Almost anything oh that starts with the People's yeah. is this bad. This is amazing. Like yeah. this, uh-huh. I, the Khmer Rouge Education uh, Foundation. I mean, the People's Institute. Yeah. Oh, dear God. But they train They train the teachers. So all these professional development opportunities are, you know, they they partner with the you know, with the schools and with the accrediting agencies. And, and there are whole, you know, there are conferences that you can go to. I think, you know, Coleman Hughes talked about the People of Color Conference, where it's, it's almost like a, a tent revival mm. around mm-hmm. racism, about race and, and, you know, getting coming to understand your critical consciousness around yeah. those things. And kids are sent to that. Like we, we, every year we send a group, it's a big rah-rah moment. It's like, you know, uh, Tent revival and the Great Awakening, or something like that. Yeah, it's worth underscoring that the Biden administration just this week announced uh, their plans for a, a grant program for history and civics education, and they want to prioritize uh, instruction that's centered around discriminatory policies in America and that value diverse student perspectives. And it specifically cites the 1619 Project, which is Nicole Hannah-Jones thing at the New York Times, and the work of anti-racist activist uh, Ibram, Ibram Kendi, who we've talked about on the podcast. So this isn't isolated. And there is a determination to make these programs more ubiquitous. And I, I mean, I, I'm inclined to agree, Paul, like the, the key to all of this so, so is, is really parents getting involved. The concern that I've expressed a couple of times, I know we talked about this previously because we had a conversation on Clubhouse some weeks back, is that the conservative impulse, the conservative response to this under the Trump administration was one, to sort of ban DEI training at the federal level and various organizations, which, you know, okay, whatever, but specifically to develop some sort of pro-America curriculum, which a battle to control which ideological propaganda is taught inside of America's public schools is not a battle that I want anyone to win. I, I hope that both sides just annihilate one another because <laughs> that's not a, a recipe for success. But getting parents involved and having like, genuine, open, honest conversations about what's happening is really important. And quite frankly, to the extent Kendi's work is going to be discussed or the 1619 Project, it just has to be 
on a terrain where if someone does say want to bring in like a book from Thomas Sowell or some perspectives from Glenn Lowry or a white kid, for example, just decides, hey, I don't really want to be described as a fucking monster by my teachers. <laughs> like That should be OK. <laughs> I know that that's a lot to ask for, but that ought to be OK. And also, it ought to be OK for me to not have to be concerned that some school is going to try to get a hold of my daughter and tell her that she is inferior and that she is incapable of being superlative because she's a, a member of the Negro race, because she's capital B black. I think that's fucking monstrous. Well, I, I'll, I'll add one thing to yours. I, I think that's right. And both of you saying you know, parents getting involved. The other thing that can be done is being Paul Rossi. It is being brave and calling bullshit because the difference, I mean, you see a lot of similarities between stuff that happened like in the 70s, this kind of wild, wild country, people back to the land, cultish, weirdo, f familiar language uh, to a lot of people. The difference is, is that no one was afraid to call those people crazy at the time. Now that we are governed by this fear. And, you know, when somebody comes out and says, hey, I think, I don't know if the Brearley dad came out after you, but it's the I am Spartacus moment is that somebody has to come stand up and say, it's okay to actually disagree with this stuff publicly. You will not be called a monster. You will not be called a racist or you will be, but it doesn't matter because you aren't and will be standing four square behind you. I don't understand how you can be anti-racist and pro-race at the same time. You can't. I mean, well, actually you can, but only because anti-racist is a, is a contentless like, yeah. idea. It, it effectively means almost anything you want it to mean. But what it actually materially means is that you are in favor of discriminating against people in order to undo prior discrimination, which, of course, creates new discrimination, which necessarily means your hope is that you can advance these other people. And if it retards the development of some people in the process, well, so much the better. They had it too good anyways. That is the prescription here. People see how that's it feels. the program. See how it yes. Feels. And, and you'll routinely hear things like that. Now, you know how black people feel all of the time. It's the reason why people express monstrous sentiments when they encounter like police involved violence. They'll say crazy shit like, well, you know, if he was black, he'd be dead. Would you be happy with that outcome? Is that what you're, are you cheering for that? It's the reason why I, I almost get the sense, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but there's perhaps some disappointment in some circles that there was actually a conviction on all three motherfucking counts, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, and Paul, I won't, I won't force you to be around for that sacrilege. I appreciate you joining us. I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll continue talking and thank you for sharing your story and for writing such a great piece that I can circulate to friends and family and, and encourage people to read. And I think it really isn't uh, a revealing glimpse and a disturbing glimpse at some of the things that are happening in America's schools during a year when kids need their schools fucking desperately. They need them to actually function, not be propaganda mills, which, again, just offensive and outrageous. And echoing uh, Moynihan, you know, being brave and calling bullshit is not easy. Amen. You stuck your neck out. Um, your neck got hacked on a little bit, um, maybe a lot of bit, but maybe that can be some regeneration in other directions as well. So thank you for doing that. Thank you guys for having me on. It's, 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 it's great. I love it. Been great. Thank being you very here. much, Paul. The Trojan horse, the fifth column. column. Paul's a good guy. Column. Yeah, yes. that one. 
<laughs> he was the guy that was just on. Man. No, yeah. but like uh, I thought he was addressing a Paul. There was like another Paul, uh, the fourth Paul, the dead Paul. No. Beatles, right? Yeah. There's a Paul uh, the Beatles. I buried Paul. Paul buried himself. That's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, Paul's a, a very bright guy. I mean, he, he's he's too smart to be teaching uh, high school math, by the way. $57,000 a year for high school. Oh, my God. <laughs> for high school that takes a week off a month to not teach 7000 <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, granted, I'm old and there's been uh, price hikes since, but I, I'm pretty sure that I was, or my parents, for the one year that I was in college, paid about $3,000 for the University of California at Santa Barbara in 1986 and 1987, which is okay. So it only cost you three grand to have someone call you a racist every day, <laughs> as opposed to 57,000. Just like, I mean, he, he, he didn't even get inflation. that. He didn't even get but, that. Yeah. Wow. It's, Jeez. But then it's for high school kids. It's not even to like actually learn a damn thing. It's to get you to a place to pretend to learn a damn thing. I just, yeah, uh, I the know. Caitlin Flanagan piece, if, all y'all haven't uh, – I'm just going to use y'all for reasons of group texts between the three of us <laughs> forever. First of all, yeah. because I grew up saying y'all uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and Liar. Uh, uh, Appropriator. No, not at all. Um, what were we talking about again? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't help you. This this podcast just got canceled. It's <laughs> totally – Not like in the like woke way, but just like actually canceled. Uh, no more episodes are going to be made. It's it's <laughs> fine. I'm uh, I've I've forgotten everything. We will start now. It. Now this is the new start. This is a new start. This is a new start. Hello. Um, um. So why don't we talk about all the stuff that's enveloping the nation and that I can't stop getting emails about from everybody? Like I mean, literally, like the local muffler companies. Like you know what? If you have an issue with uh, Derek Chauvin, I'm like, you know what? Why is everyone talking about this? I thought that's yeah. a top story in Sweden. It was in Sweden. Sweden. It was the top story. This is a global yeah. a global phenomenon. I wa- I Unexpe- thought it would be useful, Camille, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Uh, me to at least read one or two sentences from my middle school principal and have you see if there's anything that you're in Moynihan, see if there's anything that's worth uh, fact checking. Uh, this on. is the middle sure. school. Middle school. One of your daughters attends. Yes, not the middle school you attended. Okay, Just correct. Sure. That those okay. were called junior <laughs> high school back in the nineteen twenties when I went to middle school. So, okay. um, uh, as we absorb yesterday's verdicts in Minneapolis and all that it means, comma, please join me in remembering George <laughs> Floyd's life while also acknowledging the incessant discrimination and violence black and brown communities experience as they navigate a world with so much bias, hatred, and police violence directed at them, period. Uh, Any comments or questions, Camille, so far? Wow, that's pretty rough. Um, That's an interesting use of the word incessant. Um, I I don't know that that's true. (laughs) I mean, the principal issue here, and an issue I've raised in a number of different contexts, perhaps to no avail, and maybe I should just stop it, is pointing out that there is no material fact about this case, the incident in which Derek Chauvin and several other officers are apprehending George Floyd or holding him, let's say, having already apprehended him, and he dies. He dies while in police custody, and there is no evidence that this any this outcome would not have happened were all other things equal and he just happened to be white just none whatsoever 
It wasn't brought up at the trial, from what I understand. It wasn't brought up at the trial. It was not not brought up at the trial, but it's also just, it's not material to the the trial. It's not material to the things that were being prosecuted and investigated. Maybe it comes up in sentencing in some context, but it it isn't relevant to the trial. It could have been if there was a pattern. It's the only element of this case that people are interested in talking about. It could have been, uh, it could have been relevant if there was a pattern and practice of behavior. Um, It certainly would have been brought up. Um, if if that were the case, and right. if that were the case, if, yeah. and and I presume, and you guys watched the trial or parts of it, and I watched none of it, I presume the fact that he had what twenty two other complaints against him, I don't know to what degree, what you know, if there's any pattern, I presume that was brought up. But those complaints, from what I understand, are not like, oh, he was a super big racist. Uh, it was about mm-hmm. the use of force. It was about how he conducted himself. And I mean, and of course, with police complaints, you have to compare them to the number of complaints that other officers get. You need to establish right. sort of a, a baseline because they're so frequent. Um, people get arrested and they make a complaint. Although they're much less frequent now because of uh, cameras, uh, which is a, they are much less frequent now because of cameras. But uh, but yeah, I mean that's but to, but to the point though, it's like there was race was not brought up because if it doesn't come to the surface immediately. We just don't pay attention. We still go forward with the, the narrative that was established very, very quickly after he was killed. The thing that one expects is picking through the guy's garbage, finding a tweet, a, a quote, a Instagram post, a Facebook post that would even suggest that he was a Republican, something like that. I mean, remember this happened <laughs> in Atlanta where the guy had the uh, T-shirt that he that he posted, the police chief in Atlanta. This was somehow related to the killings at the massage parlor, which were not racially motivated, but uh, were made about race pretty quickly, that this guy had posted a T-shirt about the coronavirus. And it made some reference to like made in China, something like that. And that got a lot of traction for for many, many, many days. There was a shooting in Indianapolis at a Federal Express facility. I think four maybe of the victims, I'm probably wrong about that, but but it was something like that. Four or five victims were Sikh uh, because there's a very large Sikh community there. Um, A number of them work at the facility and there are a number of victims who weren't. Immediately after that, there was like, was this, look for the articles, there's a bunch of them. Was he motivated by racial hatred against Sikh people? It appears that he had some sort of deep mental illnesses. His parents recognized it and tried to report him, et cetera. But then there was a, a story the other day. He might have visited white supremacist websites, right? So you keep picking through this stuff. <laughs> desperate. And, desperate for it. And they, they really, really want it. They want this to be true. No one is going to get a Mark Furman in you know, 2021. Mark, what Mark Furman said, imagine a time where nothing was recorded. <laughs> Where you actually have tapes of yourself spouting off the N-word and this, that, and the other, and saying super racist stuff. And that was a material bit of evidence that helped collapse the trial, uh, the, the charges against O.J. Simpson. So nothing, no one brings it up in the trial. And every single, and this is what's interesting in the uh, wake of the actual verdict, is the verdict didn't surprise me. It doesn't strike me as a miscarriage of justice. It seems about what I would expect and seems like something like that should have happened. And I broadly agree with it. But afterwards, what's what's interesting is the press coverage and the way language changes instantly. And it's all talked about in the context of race and how we heal racially, et cetera, despite the fact that the trial they're talking about did not mention it. And that's a kind of a strange thing. Gavin Newsom, kind of a strange thing. the governor of California. Uh, yeah. Not an insignificant job, and not a job that 
uh, has a small amount of interaction with people based on policing, as Kamala Harris can tell us, like immediately said something like, yes, justice was done or whatever. But uh, the big problem is that this wouldn't have happened if George Floyd looked like me. Was his comment? No, if it looked like him, he'd be he'd be haggling over the check at the French Laundry. <laughs> no, he would have been, he would have been he would have been beaten to death with a shoe. Because look at that like fucking snipe yeah. motherfucker. Um, yeah, no, you're, uh, I mean that's the, the, American psycho motherfucker. No, but the, the idea and Camille has done actual work on this, and Thaddeus Russell, our friend, points this out as well. The idea I heard. You know, the, my my ten second NPR this morning was five seconds. Oh my god! Because it was literally an interview with someone dealing with the Columbus, Ohio shooting, uh, which we'll I'm sure we'll talk to. And it was just a quote from uh, someone in Columbus saying, "They're picking off black cops. Are picking off black people one by one by one." Like this is like was a normal quote, like a normal point of view to have out there, and. That's insane on its own part, and I suspect Camille might have something to say about that. But the idea that there aren't use-of-force incidents against white people that are totally egregious and for the most part, with some exceptions, Kelly Thomas and Fullerton, which is something The Reason has covered wonderfully over the last 10 years. There can be wonderful coverage of a really horrifying beatdown. Those happen too, and like that should actually get you to a better place, which is that – Hey, look, you know, um, in many cases, there isn't video and the video is suppressed or in many cases, there's qualified immunity or this should cause us to reflect on the use of power itself when it happens, why it happens, how it's adjudicated. And people don't want to have that conversation. You, uh, you have to, to re-remind yourself, even as an increasingly old person, that especially political actors and media can be part of the political acting part, they're going to respond to incentives. Gavin Newsom wakes up and he is ready to go to put himself on the side of the good team. And from his mm -hmm. point of view, the side of the good team makes this about race right away. It does not cause for reflection about the power that he actually wields. The same is true of Maxine Waters, right? Like Maxine Waters made that verdict less likely. So did Joe Biden, mm -hmm. both of them, by opening up their yaps. Did they? I think so. Did they? I think so. Or at least, I don't know. Or like that verdict is the wrong way, but the ultimate verdict after it works through the appeals process. Like I suspect mm -hmm. we might hear about Maxine Waters in the appeals process, whether it works. We, we will undoubtedly hear about that. The judge the himself, judge himself suggested that. That, she, that she put the case in jeopardy. Um, because she descended on the city and met with protesters and demonstrators and specifically said to them, if he is not found guilty, 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 uh, we need to get more confrontational. confrontational. <laughs> with um, we because meet, that's what I wonder. We, meet, we in, need in, to in general, tell them that in we general. mean business. Because, um, this, because yeah, these racist Republicans have already proven that they are willing to kill all of us. They don't care. This not a is direct quote. hysterical madness. Speak to this, Camille. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question on that, okay? Because I was listening to NPR tonight, and Ari Shapiro, you know, these people who know a lot about policing, who I, I presumably went to Yale, was uh, doing his intro, and he was talking to somebody about this. 
and said, you know, what do we do? Oh, he was talking, he was talking to, I think it was to George Floyd's brother, which took up the first 15 minutes, which I don't think I've heard the first 15 minutes of All Things Considered devoted to one topic since 9-11. I'm probably wrong about that, but it's, it's very rare that this happens. And I, I noted down what, what he said to uh, George Floyd's uh, brother, <laughs> who was, you know, by the way, completely sensible and, you know, um, completely he, he sympathetic character. And, yeah. um, you know, he was saying the right things. And I was like, oh, this is, he's an interesting guy. And he's, Ari Shapiro says, these killings just don't stop. And then he says, well, Indianapolis, and then there's the, Ari, Ari Shapiro said this. These killings just don't <laughs> stop. So when we're in the era of coronavirus, where we're talking about opening up and we're talking about vaccines and talking about what we can and we cannot do, we've kind of been a little more accustomed to talking about data and a lot of data, right? Because without the data, we can't move out of our house. So data is actually holding us hostage. And the more we know about the data, and if it's trending in the right directions, we're sort of liberated from this, these like COVID shackles. One would expect that this new focus on data would maybe apply itself to other things too. These killings just don't stop. The question I have for you, Camille, because I know, and we've talked about this in the past, that these types of things are, are less likely now than they were, say, 10 years ago. Than sure. body, body cameras, et cetera. If you listen to the, when will these killings stop? They don't stop. They're hunting us. They're picking us off. Mm -hmm. um, you know, LeBron tweeting and deleting, you're next to the uh, cop uh, who shot involved the, in the Ohio shooting. Yeah. In the, uh, yeah. In the, uh, yeah. In the Ohio shooting. And that is like, there is this, uh, look, should I say the word? I'll say the word. There's a hysteria that mm -hmm. this is every day, everywhere. And what you need to do to create that narrative is to not point out that a cop in mm -hmm. Columbus, Ohio, saved somebody's life. Right. Took a life, but he also saved a life. So, because it, if, I, if everybody watched that video, that woman is getting a knife plunged into her back in full motion of plunging a knife into somebody's back. The kid in um, Chicago... 13-year-old kid, Chicago, which, of course, the cops don't know he's 13. They're chasing a suspect. Right, Adam Toledo. Yeah, and turns, has a gun, sees the gun, ditches the gun, gets shot. All of these things have been mentioned. It just doesn't stop. They won't stop killing us. And to kind of make that argument, you have to forget about the stabbing motion. You have to forget about the gun. You have to say that you know exactly, well, why didn't, this is the one here today, why didn't that cop in Columbus tase the person who was 25 feet away. Like, what are you talking about, people? Do you understand what this job is? Do you understand that people screw up in this job and make horrible decisions and you should be punished for it like Derek Chauvin? And the video and is like nine seconds long. doesn't take long to watch. It's no. so yeah, fast. So I, I feel like we're, 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 we got a bunch of stuff going on here. We got like 20 different threads because no, no, but there, it's all, but there it's, are no, multiple, no, no, no. Hold on, hold multiple on, cases that no, have been no, like, pulled the, together the, the individual cases we can address. But I just think that the, the reason I bring them all together at one time. Well, they've been doing it too. Everyone has done it from the, the prosecutor, the, the DA, to the president of the United States. All of yes. them have done precisely the same thing, well, which no, I that's think is why. a huge problem. Yeah. Because you, what you have to do is to take all of these cases, forget important details to establish the narrative rather than doing the data thing. Yeah. Because the data thing would maybe show you something different. Anecdote is 
you know, <laughs> what is the, the plural of anecdote is data. It's, it's just, you know, this is one thing after another. They won't stop killing us. And to do that, you have to take these examples, all of them, one after another, and leave out relevant details so it makes it look disastrous. If we were to take a step back here, because we, we kind of launched into this conversation, the Floyd decision is, is a tricky one for a bunch of different reasons. But something that I think I said on the Patreon, but I, I'm pretty sure I haven't said in the, in the principal recording here, or maybe I said some version of it, but I'll restate it anyways, is that when a civilian dies in police custody, this is an issue. Generally speaking, someone didn't do their job and only one of those parties is working. Like the cop is working, the civilian is not, you know? It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. Like it needs to be investigated thoroughly impartially, seriously, transparently. People need to know that they can trust that the use of force on the part of the agent of the state is something that is actually valid and justifiable. And if it wasn't, then there needs to be punishment for that. In far too many instances, law enforcement has been able to either investigate themselves or the, there's been insufficient transparency because of the way the investigation is processed, say some sort of like secret jury proceeding or something like that. Like these are problems. And it's important that that be addressed. And similarly, when there's a police use of force that involves a gun, there's a shooting, even if someone who has a gun, like there needs to be a serious investigation. All of that is important to acknowledge. And in this particular case, it is very hard for me, having looked at the evidence to not believe that Derek Chauvin and the rest of the officers involved in George Floyd's arrest and death, like there's some culpability there. There are mistakes made. The question, however, becomes whether or not two murder convictions, one of which was on a charge that a previous judge was pretty sure did not need to be in the case. The prosecution had to fight to include it. The judge said, this isn't a part of this case. It doesn't make sense. But the jury in 10 hours without saying a word to the judge, returns a verdict of guilty on all three of these counts straight away. Maybe the evidence is just that overwhelming. Maybe it's just that the video is that compelling. It's the video. But it, it matters that like the actual, there is, I want to say literally, and I'm pretty sure, there's no precedent for this, Right? Like a prone restraint situation, like leading to like actual murder convictions, like the police officers at many intervals could have used more force in different circumstances and opted not to. They called for an ambulance and talked about his condition with one another. I don't believe for a moment that anyone there made a conscious decision to kill George Floyd or wanted that outcome. But that's not the conviction, right? At the same, at the same, well, to some extent it is with respect to some of these murder charges. Like this, this isn't immaterial, but the issue is that there was a responsibility to render aid to someone who was obviously in distress and serious questions about why they did not do that, which the defense obviously didn't provide a, a sufficiently good explanation for the purposes of the jury's deliberations. And there are also questions about different decisions that were made, whether or not to pull them out of the car, et cetera. And I think it's fair to ask questions about that. But that's the specific elements of the case. And in some respect, none of these things matter anymore 
because the only thing that matters is the role that the case plays and like the broader conversation about race and racial justice. And now more broadly, like beyond criminal justice reform, but in the criminal justice reform conversation as well, now that the Justice Department is apparently going to be swooping in to Minneapolis to do something in the police department there, some sort of monitoring long-term project to try and root out all of the the racism that is inherent in the organization. And it's just, I find all of the, the theater surrounding it, particularly the manifestation of it with this shooting in Columbus, where we didn't know much of anything when this thing was unfolding. You saw the reporting coming out of the New York Times and virtually everywhere else where you started to get all of these breathless accounts of a murder that obviously took place where an officer arrived on the scene, gunned down a 15-year-old girl for no reason because she definitely didn't have a knife in her hand. And people are incensed and people are out in the streets again. And she and the story is being help. pushed by all. She called That's for help the and they thing. murdered her. And it's, it's like crazy. the Jacob Blake they, thing. They don't care about He was you. breaking up a fight and they killed him. The uh, Daily, him. The Daily yeah. Beast where Michael Moynihan used to work, if I have it right. <laughs> they have this uh, tick, right? They have the headline and they have the subhead. And then they have this little red thing that goes on the like, uh, like a diagonally like they used to do on the newspapers, right? On the, on the end, like, you know, special insert inside. It's, it's sort of like a little phrase. And the little phrase on their initial story, which is the one that I think got the most like national pickup, was again and again. Mm-hmm. That was their – Again and again. Again and again. Yeah. From, which they meant is again and again, the cops just shoot the black people. Again and again. They're just doing it again. And then it took like many hours for them to maybe kind of revisit some of the details of the story. The initial reporting and the spreading and the sharing of the reporting of the story was exactly as you mentioned, Camille. It was like, my gosh, she called for help. They shot her without any warning. And she's a child. Can you believe this happened again and again? And it's not just that that exact story, but like the pre-stories of it. The New York Times had a piece that's also been widely sort of cited and quoted mm-hmm. a couple of days ago saying that from the time just beginning of the Derek Chauvin trial to the date that the story was published, there have been 64 officer-involved deaths or shootings or civilians who have died in officer custody and like half have been BIPOCs and, um, and you know, basically again and again. Um, and there wasn't in the story, it's, it's pretty remarkable to read, like you have to sort of drill down and maybe follow a link or two or three to get to the actual individual details. They, they want to flatten the individual details. For them, the individual details is like 64, big number, which it is. It's a big number, actually. 1,000 a year, you're right. It, it's a smaller number than it was 10 years ago and way smaller than it was, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. Still a big number, even on a per capita basis compared to a lot of other countries. And yet it's 1,000. It's not like you walk out of your house and you might not survive that walk because you might get shot by a cop number. It's just not that number. And to pretend it is is crazy. But people's reactions to this have all been in that direction. Not all, but most of them have been in that direction, like a deliberate attempt to never um, – to go away from the individual details of the case, um, especially where they become inconvenient. I mean, I mean the, the age thing, I think, is pretty telling. 
when you have Adam Toledo, who's 13 years old. Yeah. It, it just an unbelievable, indescribable tragedy for a kid who's 13 years old to be shot and killed in a situation like that. And you have this girl in Columbus who's 15. 16. 16. And yeah, this is this is a new a new refinement. A new, Everyone a new, was saying fifteen yeah, before. 15. Now she, she's again, sixteen. Of course, we didn't know anything. So sixteen. So she's sixteen, and as is usually, you it's usually accompanied with some very very young looking picture, the cherubic face, and like mm-hmm. to really drive home how horrible uh, it is. But here's something that people don't really think about: is that Adam Toledo. It was said by the Chicago police. I don't know if this is true. And they said things that didn't turn out not to be true. So they don't have a ton of credibility in my book, but that there was gun residue on his hand and he had a gun that he threw away about two or three minutes before. And there's video of this. There was somebody you can see them in the distance. We can't make out who it is shooting into a car or at a car that is driving by. And then we see the other video of this girl in Columbus. And you see inches from plunging a knife into somebody's back could hit an artery and kill them instantly. I think she was turned to her. Oh, she's turned to her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She was turned to her. He's pressing her up against the car and the knife is moving to her. Yes. In her direction when the officer discharges his weapon. The the, the thing that I mean, I I understand why people would, would highlight the ages of these people, but highlight the ages of these people to show what's is happening in certain communities that is overwhelmingly horrible that 13 year olds have guns, 15 year olds are stabbing people. This is just not the normal kind of middle school thing that the average American uh, expects. But if you get stabbed in the stomach or get stabbed in the neck and these blood spurts out and you die, you get shot or your girlfriend gets shot or your child gets shot. You don't give a shit that the kid's 13 who shot, shot, you know, it's immaterial. It's like the people in these both of these situations are committing acts of violence or attempting to. And those things are important to point out. Now, does it mean that the police acted perfectly in both situations? No. But it also I actually in in both of those situations, I, I can't imagine what else one would do? But yeah, uh, we we don't even know yet. The, the investigation is is incomplete in both cases. Like we don't, yeah, we, I, the, we barely know anything about what happened in the in the circumstance yesterday with the young girl who was trying to stab another girl, and with the Toledo story, we're really just beginning to sort through all of this. The the gentleman who he was with, who is, was arrested, is just today, I believe, or yesterday, was um, sent to prison. So it's like yeah, and I only say that from because of the videos. And yeah. then saying, like, just watching the videos, like, oh, that's a tough one. When I saw the George Floyd video uh-huh. at first, I was like, I can't, I couldn't believe it. And I'm just like everybody else. But I think that, you know, as you're pointing out, the, the, the complications of these different charges were mm-hmm. flattened by the jury. And they were like, this is so bad. Let's, the, all three, you're gone. And I think it's probably that moment when you see George Floyd go limp and Derek Chauvin doesn't move, doesn't get off of right. him. Right. And One, that is like, and holy, even the, even the video doesn't give you, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even the, exactly. And even the video doesn't give you a great, it can't but, give you the full context. It, it like, can, no, but it One can give angle you, just can't do it. But it, it, it can give you, but is, it can give you something that a jury can hold on to as stronger than witness testimony, which uh, well, it, like this, this a lot true. of what you do when you're questioning, asking the judge for more questions. And it was a bizarre thing too, right? They couldn't get the transcripts of testimony. Um, according to what, whatever arcane yeah. rules that they have there. But um, it, you, you know, can't get the transcript. You can consult your notes. 
you need to recall this from memory. But I would, but again, I would invite, it doesn't it doesn't actually matter in this case because they walked out of the room knowing what they were going to do. I would <laughs> I would invite uh, you, Camille, to reflect on maybe the the kind of flip interpretation of the observation that you made earlier that this is so unusual this prosecution like it doesn't happen like this it could be that these types of prosecution don't happen generally speaking because police are given too much immunity or given too much deference oh, sure. or allowed sure. to not have to talk to investigators for 24 hours to an entire month after a use of force Incidents right. and also are, are, are allowed to coordinate stories, allowed to coordinate <laughs> stories. And in, also in, there's in not that, in that intervening time, the story that makes them makes their shoot seem more justified or makes that death seem more understandable considering the circumstances, uh, a privilege granted to no, no individual in a similar context and, a, and bystander video and also now uh, dash cams and cop cams now change things. Right. So many of these kind of cases and we referenced, referenced this earlier, there used to be gigantor settlements against or, you know, lawsuits and then settlements against the LAPD when I was living in Southern California, because you'd have these uh, lawyers who specialized in it. Uh, Stephen Yagman was a guy who just like soaked the LAPD every year. And the LAPD was soakable like they <laughs> they had some blood on their hands, very literally. But also like you could never adjudicate the claims really because no one had video so it's like what whose liars could you get on this side whose liars could you get on this side and one thing that led to the proliferation of cameras in part was that police forces like oh we're going to cut down on frivolous lawsuits by 80 (laughs) percent right like these claims of the horrible things the cops did turned out not to have been done and so that was Pretty helpful, but also it is helpful in the conviction now, rarely, of police officers. So some of this, I think there's been a lot of speculation from what I understand. Again, I didn't follow the trial, really. Um, I didn't. That's not. I know. It's just you keep you keep saying so. No, because I don't want to pretend like I know everything here. But I think well, been, I'm yeah. just a country lawyer. <laughs> country lawyer. I don't know who, much about. Well, you know who's a country lawyer who plays one on TV is Tucker Carlson, who did a super heavy breathing segment about how this obviously is Joe Biden and Maxine Waters who uh, uh, you know privileged the jury negatively. I don't think that he knows that any more than I don't know that. No, right? No, no, no way. We don't know that. There's no, there's a, there's, no a, there's big speculation about all of that. And I, and I, I think yeah. it's important to realize that the role of video in this allows for the possibility of uh, possibilities that weren't in play 30 years ago. And I'm glad for that. I think that we have allowed there to be too much action without possibility of consequences for police officers in a bunch of different ways. And I hope and I know that this hope is probably unfounded, that instead of Gavin Newsoming and Maxine Watersing this current moment, people look around mm-hmm. and say, okay, what are the structural things that are impediments to having justice <laughs> done in this? And what can we do about those things? And because there's plenty of them, they're on the table, they're actually possible. And I think Democrats in particular should be held accountable if they don't do them in the next two years, because that's as long as they're going to have that majority. Well, some some of those things are happening. I mean, I, I'll I'll take a slightly different take um, approach to this. I mean, first, Matt, I, I'll certainly grant like law enforcement has had given, been given too wide a berth historically. We have seen 
number of police involved shootings decline pretty much in line with the decline in violence overall, like across the society. Um, the proliferation of cameras early on was it was expected that we would see those numbers fall even more precipitously. And early on, it was not obvious that that was happening. And there are lots of reasons why that might be the case. The fact that the standards for use of the cameras across the board were hardly and remain at this point hardly universal. Um, but it is the case that we have more footage in a number of instances. What I think is pretty remarkable, though, is in the Adam Toledo case and in the most recent case in Ohio and Columbus, the young girl's name is, I believe it's Michaela Bryant. Um, Everyone has seen the footage now, or at least anyone who wants to see the footage can see it. But we're not seeing the same thing. We are watching the same clip. We aren't seeing the same thing. Like the conclusions that people are drawing after having seen this footage are incredibly divergent. I know serious journalists who work at major publications who watched the Adam Toledo video and immediately made posts about how, well, he didn't have a gun. The police lied. And this is a travesty. He was murdered. This is murder. This is instantaneous policing. It's the, it's the worst thing imaginable. And I went back and looked at the video and actually had to look at it from a couple of different angles, looking at different things that were released. And it became obvious to me and lots of other people that, well, wait, he had a gun in his hand, <laughs> like not just moments before he was shot, like less than a second before less he than was a shot. Yeah. And that's kind of a huge difference. And there's a video and it's ve- something very similar with this other shooting where initially people rushed to a conclusion about what had happened with Michaela and the expectation was that it was one thing. And when the video came out, people were so married to the narrative that this was the most outrageous murder, perhaps like they're reaching two different conclusions. One is, oh my God, this young lady was about to stab someone else. And this police officer probably saved a life by shooting her and a universe of other people who are saying, well, he didn't have to shoot her. Like he could have tackled her or that's cold blooded. I mean, he was only there for seven seconds. How can you possibly believe that? And there's a sense in which there was a a hope that the cameras and that this, this visibility would give us a kind of ability to really properly adjudicate these police interactions. But it's clear that the ideology and our supposition about what America is and isn't and what police are and aren't is actually what is kind of driving our interpretation of virtually everything. And quite frankly, even our interest in facts and evidence related to these different cases. And I think that is a pretty disturbing trend and doesn't bode well when it comes to the possibilities for police reform. And while people are talking about making particular policy changes, many of which I like when I hear people talking about limiting qualified immunity or getting rid of it altogether, I'm like, okay, that's great. But the basis upon which we're moving towards these things seems to be all wrong, (laughs) just all wrong. I hope that we, you know, obviously we do too, um, to have a, take a bit of that with us when we look at this stuff. I try not to. I try, I honestly try not to. If, if, if there was no knife in that girl's hand in oh Columbus, God. I'd be like, Can this is imagine? the most yeah. disgusting thing I've ever seen. 
Whereas I think, and not to say oh, we're great and all these other people aren't, but I, I do know people who are hyper-ideological about this issue. And you could say narrowly, they don't like cops, for instance. Um, can think of a few people like that. And immediately, immediately in those two cases, I sent you tweets from a couple of people in the Toledo case and in the, in the uh, Columbus case that said, this is what happened. And I think in one case, I had to even back away because it was getting too much shit for it and saying that actually is not what happened. Sorry. It's like, wait, why are you, if you're a journalist, why are you immediately saying this is mm -hmm. what happened? These people are bad. Ideology governs all in this. And it's really depressing because, you know, your priors are what every what these people want is something to further an idea, a policy proposal, whatever it might be. We need to change things. What are those things? Well, we need to, you know, defund the police. We need to defund the police. Oh, that seems like a bad idea. Well, we don't mean defund it. Okay, well, what do you mean? We mean defund it. I'm like, okay, I, you lost me in the when everyone's saying that defund the police doesn't mean defund the police. Okay, fine. Just pick a different word. English language is very rich. You can have this number of things you can say. And now we're like, well, this is what has to be done in Minneapolis. Well, to your point, Camille, as these numbers go down, and it follows the trend of murders and everything. It's also following the trend that things are going up. No one is talking about this at all. There has been a massive increase in shootings, a massive increase in violence, a massive increase in murders. I mean, even in Chicago, which I didn't think you, there were enough people to actually kill at this point, you know, <laughs> shootings are up 42, 43% over last year. So Adam Toledo's more likely to happen, right? Because there are people in there that are going after the bad guys who are firing off weapons in the middle of their city, which is like Aleppo is safer than Chicago is in certain parts of Chicago these days. And when they're responding to those calls, this is going to happen more, right? So hmm. I don't know why people aren't making this connection, which seems rather, rather obvious to me. And they say, well, no, the shootings aren't happening because uh, defund the police. I was like, yeah, okay, good. I don't give a shit why they're happening. They are happening. And you aren't focusing on them at all. The only thing you're focusing on is doing your fucking Zapruder film on Adam Toledo video and every other video. Like, well, where he had a fragment of a section, a second to think about it at that point, because, you know, I'm a fucking loser who sits in front of my computer talking about what the police should and shouldn't do and never leave the fucking house. And you can tell me what a guy who has a kid with a gun running and turns towards him what he should have done in that second. I appreciate it. That's it's great. I know all of your experience is telling you exactly what you would do in that split second. But no one is paying attention to the fact that the murders in all of these cities are through the roof and you don't give a shit. But you do give a shit when you're like, oh, there's a cop here. We can make a point and get on Twitter and I can I can do my little thing. It's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, cops shouldn't be shooting people like this. This is bad. It's bad that even if it's a, a, a quote-unquote good shoot, it's terrible that this is happening. And we should focus on this. But come on. Can we, can we talk about the this the this for a moment when you say this is happening? Because we say like a 13-year-old kid was killed in an interaction with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. A police officer shot him. Mm -hmm. If this 13-year-old kid who had been involved in some street shit, like he, he was involved in street shit, yes, he, he just was. disappeared from home. A kid who could be out at, in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, in fact, armed with an older man, like shooting at passing cars. This is what all of the available evidence suggests took place. 
the thing that happened to him is being born into a circumstance where that is a, a, yep. a possibility. Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and going through schools and an education system and living in a city where all of these things are a possibility, where there are, as you have noted, hundreds of people who are shot every single year. In fact, thousands of people who are shot every single year. This year alone, more than 900 people shot. When we did the last January podcast, 1. it was 700. Now it's 900. I looked this up yeah, the other well, day, it was too. Eight, it was 800, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was seven, seven, was seven up until April. That I and then at, in April, and it was you corrected me to 800, yeah. and now it's 900. Yeah, and yeah. now it's 900. 900 plus. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> remarkable. It's weeks. It's but that's insane. that's the thing what we we ought to be grappling with and what's amazing is we all know Adam Toledo's name had he been murdered by another 13-year-old in Chicago we wouldn't know who the fuck he is and the perverse morality of the circumstance here is that all of the performative like bullshit politics about oh my god racial justice oh my god white supremacy is killing children do we really give a fuck about kids when we know that in Chicago like wasn't it like a seven-year-old girl who was shot and killed in a McDonald's parking lot yes. in the exact same city? Yeah. Who knows her name? Who gives a fuck? Shot in like, the head, there yeah. was no press conference about that in Chicago yesterday when they were making a determination that maybe it's time for them to amend their pursuit policy, i.e. officers have to get some sort. There needs to be a review of current procedure to determine whether or not it's okay for a police officer to chase a suspect in public because they don't want to put people in danger. I actually think that's a good idea. I think they should review those policies. Here's the thing. Any policy that you design that doesn't include chasing an armed gunman down an alley <laughs> after he's already shot at a car, right? You have shot spotter details that tell you Someone in this area shot eight shots at a passing car in a neighborhood. And if you can't chase him, something is wrong with those policies. And I personally, I am disturbed by many, many things, and I don't want anyone to die. But I don't know that I have a great deal of trouble living in a world where if, in fact, you're like wielding a knife and you are preparing to plunge it into someone and a police officer is standing 15 feet from you and is yelling at you and telling you to stop it, and you had previous to that, only moments earlier, seconds, knocked over someone else while armed with a knife, perhaps stabbing that person to, I don't know, and they shoot and kill you? Like, that is a, it's an unfortunate outcome. But I don't know that it's an unjust outcome. I find all of the performances around this stuff extremely perverse and i find the determination to lard it all up with race and to pretend that brianna taylor is george floyd is adam toledo these are all the same person and it's all a continuation of the same campaign of murderous white supremacist violence it is a complete absurdity and none of it actually moves us towards justice none of it and neither does discarding the, the actual outcome of a trial in a society that is supposed to value law and order and saying, this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. We have to tear the entire system down, which is precisely what AOC said after the George Floyd verdict. Don't confuse this with justice. Uh, one thing I would point out uh, today, there was a poll and I forget who did it, but it's a pretty good poll in New York having to do with the, the mayor's race and public attitudes about various things. Strangely, what's one of the biggest things that New Yorkers care about right now, Camille and Michael? Like 
like their number one issue for 39% of New Yorkers is rising crime. And mm. the issue of defunding police, and that's like th- at 39%, right? And defunding police is like at 11%. Like people are looking around and you can just sort of see it. You can feel it viscerally on the subway. You can see it in your neighborhoods. There was a 12 year old girl who was raped in the subway station across the street from my house. I have a 12 year old girl. Uh, it's like literally right across the street from my house in broad daylight a month or two ago. There was a murder in Park Slope today, like on Fourth Avenue, not far from where Camille used to live. And uh, crime is a thing. People care about that. When it gets to them, they care in a way that is all out of proportion. There was a really good essay today, a uh, Substack essay. Robbie Swabi wrote about it that reason. And I'm blanking on the name of the person who wrote the original essay, like Reynata something. And that's not it at all. But it like talked about the difference between ordinal involvement and cardinal involvement of in politics. People who like, you know, if you show up to vote and that's it, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you vote for Trump, you vote for Biden. It looks like Republicans and Democrats are mostly equal. It's, it's a wash. Yeah, slight tilt every year. But look at for people who are super passionate about what they want out there and push it. And this is his way or her way of, of talking about why institutions become woke. It's a very kind of a interesting look. So like the people who are passionate about this stuff push it all into this direction. And I think a lot of the conversation that we have about about crime and police and race are like that. The people who dominate the conversation are here and they are increasingly divorced from the views of sort of people who live in the world, but they are the ones who are more politically active in this. And I would suggest one kind of amendment to or like uh, extrapolation from the conversation that we had about some of this and the press coverage thereof with Wes Lowry when we had him on, which is that for a long time, American media elites in a sort of movement against populism always said, hey, hold on, don't cover crime so much because it is it's populistic. It allow you to come to conclusions sometimes about minority populations. It's sensationalistic and wrong. Like we should pull back and look at the data as opposed to pull in and look at the microcosm, well, you know, the microscopic details of this one case because then people's values might be inflamed. I've been critical of that approach for a long time for a lot of reasons, one of which is that minority communities and just communities on the ground eventually get ignored. Well, what's happened in the last 10 years? Everyone got a camera. And so you have this weird thing where now the dominant ethos in newspapers is to go from saying, hold, hold on, you know, like, let's let's be contextual to like, hold on, let's be decontextual. Right. There's a, a massive selectivity. And I know I'm saying a lot of weird pronunciation sign. That's fine. Of the way that people decide to and decide to not contextualize crime statistics. If someone says, oh, my God, you know, cops are feeling endangered. It's like, oh, you know, like, let's contextualize the dangerousness of the police officer job. You'll get that immediately. You'll get like the deaths aren't really that up and all of this. But if you, Camille, go on television, if I go on television, this happened to both of us and say police are killing fewer people of all colors. And it's just obvious that that's true. And everything that we know about the data, although the data is not as good as we would like, has suggested that people will lose their shit at you. 
They can't believe that you would say and assert such a thing because there's an active attempt to not contextualize this. It's to sensationalize exactly those individual pieces of cam phone coverage, of local news thing that's cut and pasted here. It's a big country. If you want to get excited about anecdotes, you're never going to rest because there are so many anecdotes in a country like this. It's the job, I would think, of journalists in the same way in, in you know, talking, covering COVID, and et cetera, you know, like this person got the vaccine and yet they got sick. My God, like, no, there's context behind this. And I think there's an active part on journalists right now, especially in the way that they deal in the discourse to not contextualize this at all and then to fight against those who do. And it's a real pain in the ass for people who've been talking and advocating for certain criminal justice reforms for decades. A slight expansion on what Camille said. I just wanted to point out a couple of things just to contextualize things. This weekend in Chicago, 27 people were shot this weekend. One of those, as Camille pointed out, was a seven-year-old girl sitting in a car at a McDonald's. The Chicago Sun-Times quotes her father. They just shot my baby, says father, moments after seven-year-old daughter killed at McDonald's in Homan Square. Um <sighs> 27 people Jesus. moments after you don't can you imagine no can you your imagine car. so today um is today the 21st so today yeah um one of the most repulsive political activists slash actors danny glover star of lethal weapon <laughs> ironically too old for this shit rigs and uh and star of uh, various episodes of allo presidente on venezuelan state television was uh in in um uh, Hollywood actor and political activist Danny Glover caught a red eye from San Francisco Wednesday morning to appear at a rally outside the Thompson Center in Chicago, calling for civilian control over the Chicago Police Department. Hmm. Is this what we That's need the, the star number, power? Number one problem. Is that what we need number star one power problem to come facing for? Chicago? That's why. Yeah, it's the police. So, That's the problem. Yeah. So Danny Glover is not going to show up for a little girl who gets shot in the head in front of her father. And is, does it make cable news? As far as I know, maybe maybe a couple stories here and there, but nothing significant. And look, in some way, I understand that because it's so frequent that you can't just cover Chicago shootings or that's all you'd cover. So I get that you can't cover all of them, but it would be nice once in a while if somebody pointed out that the police officer that we've been talking about, all these, you know, LeBron and Columbus saying, you're next to the cop there. Look at the shootings in Columbus. There's a, there's a shitload there too. I think there's an enormous mm -hmm. increase 20, 30, 40% there too. But no one cares about this stuff because it doesn't further any stupid, simple agenda. I wouldn't say it's stupid. It's a, it's a, a reasonable agenda if it were true that this was the major problem that need to, needs to be addressed. It's not the major problem that needs to be addressed. It's a problem that certainly can be addressed and talked about. But why is the disproportionate number of killings not getting a disproportionate amount of attention? Hmm? Your guess yeah. is as good as mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think Matt underscored it earlier. I mean, it's it's the wrong it's the wrong narrative to push. There's the possibility of suggesting there's some sort of culpability for this, so we we just don't talk about it. But uh, I, again, I just think that the morality of that is, is quite perverse. I am seeing um, a, a video percolating, which I suspect will be quite a bit better known by tomorrow, of Chris Cuomo having a conversation with Don Lemon. Oh, no. Uh, 
about yesterday's events. Well, no, this is actually this is totally sane and reasonable, which I mean, saying something if you have, you say, oh, no, uh, after you hear that, that they're talking about both the Adam Toledo shooting and the other shooting in Ohio and saying explicitly that we heard about this yesterday while we were providing our other coverage and, you know, a lot of emotions running high. We know more now. And when police are running to a scene and they are engaging with someone who is in the process of trying to kill someone, they might use deadly force. Oh, and that isn't shocking. <laughs> like this is bad because it's tragic when a 16 year old is killed. But Don Lemon here says they don't know how old she is when they're engaging with her, mm -hmm. which again, this is just so basic and so completely sane that it is astonishing to us, I suppose, <laughs> and many other people, that it seems to be taking so much effort to get there for so many people that in addition to that, they were so determined to just say, see, there it is again. There's another black person murdered and that an entire story cropped up around it. And before you knew it, thousands millions of people had shared and recirculated accounts of these events that are just, if not completely false, almost entirely false. And that is just a dangerous circumstance for us to find ourselves in. And I think it is clear cut evidence that we are in the midst of a panic and a hysteria and that the, the thing most often described as a racial reckoning where we've taken what is a very disturbing Unmitigated, it's unmitigated. It's just this disturbing video of a man dying in police custody and a trial that just concluded in which, you know, some people are completely satisfied with the outcome. The, the average American, based on the polling I've seen, is very satisfied with this outcome. I don't think the average American probably knows a great deal about how the criminal justice like, process works in a, in a trial, but whatever. They're satisfied. I just don't, I don't know that we're proceeding towards justice. And I think an, another thing that's illustrative of this is this bizarre controversy inspired by the Las Vegas Raiders putting up a post that said, I can breathe. It's all black with white letters because, you know, it's the Raiders, but also Black Lives Matter. And it's dated for 2021. And the post was inspired by something George Floyd's brother said. And everyone responded to this post with derision and outrage and they're still doing it, even after his brother has released a subsequent statement thanking the Raiders for their support. Who is this about? Is this for the Floyd family? Is that who we care about? Because they're fine with this. What are you outraged for, asshole? Like, it's just so weird. Like, the politics of all of this are so weird. I wonder how much Don Lemon is being performative in the past four or five years. Because, I mean, remember in 2013... He got in a bit of hot water for agreeing with Bill O'Reilly and doing his Bill Cosby shtick, mm -hmm. where he was like excoriated on Twitter for, you know, doing the, well, don't not pull up your pants kind of thing, but similar in that mm -hmm. universe and then defended himself on Twitter and then realized that that probably wasn't the way to get the permanent chair at CNN at uh, eight o'clock <laughs> or nine o'clock or wherever he's at now. So, yeah, I mean, it's probably a bit of Don Le Lemon's sort of natural instincts coming out and urging caution <laughs> because it seems like that, you know, he, he used to have you know, slightly heterodox views on things. So, you know, maybe it, maybe it just slipped out. So one uh, listener recently, and we talked about this in the Patreon, had asked uh, Camille, like what kind of show he would do 
at MSNBC if he was given the uh, opportunity. And there was a time after the independence, which is the world's greatest cable television show in history, in which I yeah, semi-pitched uh, MSNBC on a show. And it was basically to be about criminal justice as much as anything else. It's sort of in the wake of, of the independence because we – did a lot of what we did in the the summer of uh, Ferguson. It was 2014, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of the the stuff that really popped was, in particular, Camille's commentary, but all of our work on uh, criminal justice. And thought like, hey, wouldn't it be good to have a cable television show? It doesn't have to be every single segment or anything like that, but where you just sort of developed a sense of expertise and how to to deal with these moments where everyone is confused, where people are rushing to judgment, where there's all kinds of fraught backstories that people are bringing to it and baggage that people are bringing to it. And like where you can wade through in a sensible, but also direct and critical where necessary way of the ways in which the system is kind of tilted or rigged to be unjust or there's bad actors, like that could be a valuable service. Didn't fly necessarily, but I still uh, think that something like that would be wonderful. If you knew that there was a place that you can go who's reporting and commentary that you could trust and who knew how careful, patient. I mean, there's not a lot of places. Imagine that. Not a lot of places (laughs) in this world. No, I mean, and, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I get to work with someone like Jacob Sullum, who I can outsource my opinions about a lot of things in the legal and criminal justice world, because I know that he's scrupulous and fair and he will go to places that he doesn't want to agree with if that's where facts lead him to. But that is so rare in the world. And it's especially rare in the straight, the so-called what we used to call straight journalism world now. Oh, yeah. And it's really a shame. It's like an actual shame that you don't have a sense of, oh, I know if I look at that or if I read that, I can kind of trust it and get a sense. It's now you have to sort of like sift through 17 different things. It, it, Moynihan, and we should probably wrap up soon, but there's there's something we were talking about the other day in, in some context, and I, I don't know, maybe we will excise this, but I, I know on the podcast, like we don't want to be sensationalists. There are things that outrage us. There are things that inspire us and make us very happy and, <laughs> and give us renewed confidence and faith in humanity. We maybe don't talk about those things enough. We should work on that. But it's also the case that we will be, I think it might've been around the time that the Adam Toledo thing was happening and we were seeing some of the coverage um, about it. Even actually that New York Times story you mentioned a little while ago, Matt, where the description of that event was included and there was no reference to the fact that toledo like had a firearm in his hand again less than a second before he was shot um you actually had to keep reading before you encountered like that detail about the story it was just kind of inconvenient to the narrative so you bury it and there's a sense in which it really does feel a kind of spookily 1984 and i I have that sensation like kind of all of the time when I'm reading straight news. And I, I, it's not because the deviations from what I think is like obviously true are so egregious. Not always anyways. It's often because I just, I, my expectations are so much different that people will feel embarrassed to be so nakedly 
partisan in contexts where historically there's been this pretense of objectivity and a determination to at least present yourself as though you're someone who is thoughtfully adjudicating the facts and trying to present some some sort of affect of balanced media coverage. And it's just jarring to have that ripped away in the way that it has been. And it's just so systematic and total, really, over the course of the last like 12 odd months. And it's kind of shocking. And it's not that it came out of nowhere, but certainly the degree to which this is the case now is a bit surprising. And publications like storied publications with long histories just just vacated the space they were in before in favor of a completely different space. I, I think it's, and that's, yeah. that's challenging. It's true. I mean, and I think that it's, it, you know, it seems like a kind of lazy cliche response to it, but I think it's absolutely true. And this is from enormous amounts of observation and experience is that it is a generational thing that th- there is a generation that has come into the newsroom and come into media with a very, very different way of looking at how one reports on facts in one frame stories in what is okay to report on what isn't okay to report on. It's interesting because we, you know, we, we had uh, Paul on earlier and, you know, th- this is the, a, a sort of similar kind of instinct of like, you know, you have the head of school, right? They released a, a, a bit of audio where the head of school is like, yeah, this stuff's kind of crazy. I don't really agree with it. Mm-hmm. And that is mm-hmm. so common at media organizations. We have people up at the top who are like, it's nuts, but what am I supposed to do? It takes more and more people to produce 24-hour tweets and videos and news stories and regurgitated stuff and rewrites, etc. And we don't have the money for it because we have no ad revenue anymore. So we have to pay cheaper people who are younger people who are just out of universities and are all writing like they're at college newspapers and they do believe words are violence and they do believe that they live in this kind of boiling cauldron of white supremacy that everywhere around them. And that has changed everything. And people who kind of underplay that and say, well, come on, trust me, go into media organizations and you'll realize, and I get emails from people. I talk to people that they're these like 25 year olds that have the entire organization by the balls. And that's not an under, that's not an overstatement. It truly, mm-hmm. I can give exact mm-hmm. examples of, of this happening. And there are people who used to be your editor in a kind of his girl Friday way coming in and like yelling at the beat reporters and then going back into their, their office and slamming the door. That doesn't exist anymore. I mean, those people are just absolutely terrified of people who they pay $48,000 a year to. And in the past, we'd be like, you suck, you're gone, fired, and replace them with somebody else. Now, I mean, I, again, I see this all the time. It's not speculation. That has truly changed the outlook in the way things are reported on and the way things are, are covered. And I think Barry Wise saying a generational divide at the New York Times provoked howls of outrage because they mm-hmm. knew that it was true. Yep. And it was... Yeah, it's, it's among the most true things like, absolutely I've read right. on Twitter in, in the last several years. Not even controversial. And, and at this point, <laughs> it's so like obviously fucking true mm. that, that anyone who continues to deny it, like I, I question their sanity. Yeah. Or at least their willingness to engage with, with actual facts. I will also say, Matt, and maybe you can say some more about this, but we, we just have to have Jonathan Rauch on the, on the podcast oh, yeah. at some point in the near future because... 
while Matt has said many times, Camille, like kindly inquisitors, you should probably read that. And I was like, Ten years, dude. white man, stop telling me what to <laughs> do. Years. White people think they know everything and, and then they need, we need, we need to why read. I'll tell you what to read. Read why, to the public. Why Matt do you still, think I'm white? Still ain't read it. I read it. <laughs> Thank God. I'm kidding. I know. I'm, 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 I'm castigating myself for not having listened to you. It's a, it's such a remarkable book mm-hmm. and so incredibly prescient yep. and covers such vital concepts just the, from the intro, this is a book about the liberal social system for sorting truth from falsehood, arguably our greatest and most successful political system. Oh, we got him. We got it is him about going. the system's political enemies, not only ancient enemies, the old fashioned authoritarians, but also the newer ones, the egalitarians and humanitarians. I don't I just got a little show like no one that I've read and I've found and stumbled across some different things over the course of the past year as like so properly called and defined the bizarre O circumstance we find ourselves in today, where there is a literal contest over truth and facts and fucking reality and a contest to decide like which system we will use for making determinations about facts, whether or not it is some crass system in which the people who are defined as the weakest will effectively be able to just determine for everyone else what is true and false and what words we ought to be able to use, or or whether we'll have a genuinely just system, a liberal order in the sort of proper sense of the word, (laughs) where everything is sort of subject to public criticism in some basic discernible evidentiary standard as opposed to a a social order that turns on ridiculous superstitions about white supremacy permeating and determining every outcome in our social order. It's just the choice for me seems so easy and the stakes are so fucking high um, that it's alarming to me that we're at the point where we are, but here we are. Thing I'll say about uh, Kindly Inquisitors, besides the fact that it's really the same way that a lot of you who've listened have gotten a lot of out of uh, Martin Gurry's Revolt to the Public and uh, the episode that we did with him, it's like that, but 1994 or five. But also, it's remarkable. It's he's he is, you know, slow down. It's a small, it's a slim uh, volume. He takes things so calmly and rationally and with a scalpel and kind of like walks you through it. And it actually really energizes you about sort of the liberal project. You will be excited about liberalism again, not in the sort of political left-right sense, but like in the Mm -hmm. classical liberal enlightenment sense. It's great. And a context about it that's interesting and uh, interesting to Moynihan for sure is that it's early 90s. A lot of this was inspired at the beginning by Salman Rushdie. And that, mm-hmm. that was like a, a big bang for a lot of people who think and talk and write about free speech, not just because, oh, yeah, Ayatollah puts on a fatwa on a guy's head. That's bad. Um, no. Uh, yes, that's, that is bad. But it's also in profoundly dispiriting to look around you in this quote unquote free world, right? And see so many people who you thought were your allies, talked about mm-hmm. optical allyship, 
We're like, yeah, I don't know, man. That novel was pretty blasphemous. <laughs> or just, you know, he wasn't really – he was really good. You know, whatever. Yeah, the free speech. But he's kind of a jerk. Like suddenly everyone <laughs> became a literary critic. Um, and that's fascinating. February of, of yeah. 1989, to quote a year, was the month that gave us satanic verses and it gave us as nasty as they want to be. And at some point, two life crew, two life crew who got arrested on fucking stage in Florida, Florida. That's an interesting state. Real heroes, uh, Camille. Um, and uh, it's <laughs> interesting to call. I think I. Oh my god! We should get him on. He, ran, he was like the, he ran for like Broward County something or other a bunch of times. He ran for mayor. I think. Did he really? Yeah, he ran for office a couple <laughs> times. Yeah, yeah. It, if, for example, we were to go to Florida, <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, I think Willie Dude. D ran for. Well, Willie D I was we sitting at home watching Osceola Hall. <laughs> Let's get Luther. Campbell. I'm going to drop Luther a message and see if he wants to come on. Yeah, oh, my here. God. Uh, by the way, uh, yeah, as I said in the Patreon, uh, you guys should subscribe if you haven't, because you would have heard this uh, last week. That if you want to listen to the audiobook of uh, Jonathan Rash's Kindly Inquisitors, it is read by Penn Gillette, which I uh, discovered and allowed me to to re-listen. I've read it a couple of times, and I've been listening to it because I like. I like the timber <laughs> and cadence of Penn's voice. And I love yeah. listening to Penn Gillette and realizing, wow, Jonathan Rausch really hates Socrates. And that's, that's it. It's like, <laughs> man, Socrates sucks on free speech. You just so, like Penn Gillette. No, Soc- he has Socrates, your... Socrates is good. Plato is the problem. Oh, I'm sorry. Plato is the problem. No, Socrates yeah. was bad too on the poetry stuff. Well, yes. yes anyway, this is but, true. We'll go, but Plato, yeah, we'll... Plato is the problem. Gillette's got your vocal fry, Moynihan. Uh, he's uh, he's also from Massachusetts. He's from uh, oh god, I think Long Island, oh, Massachusetts. Know that. Yeah. He's like that. Know that. He's like the greatest dude. He's, he's the greatest. So I'm, I'm wondering if Moynihan, you made a joke in our text thread, um, and I'm wondering if it's even appropriate to share here because I don't want to actually precipitate the event. But what? I mean, what you know? What I say? Well, Penn, he. You know, he reads the book. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, Penn reads, reads the book. Penn he, he just reads, reads the whole thing. The book. This was a time when people read oh, books. Yeah. And you How know what he and, reads yeah. in the book? He reads all words, of the words that words. are in the book. Yeah. And there's yeah. some words in the book that he reads out loud on tape. Yeah. You should listen to that because there's some words that he reads. Yeah. That are just Although like, this is, you know what? You know what? He can't get canceled for that. Context, no, context doesn't, well, he's a magician. Of course he can't. <laughs> he well, he can't get canceled for, for that because he's a magician, but also because there's audio, like recorded audio of, of Joe Biden doing it and he's the president of the United States and nobody gives a fuck. Yeah, but. It's the same. It's literally the same. But it's yeah. also like no one's mad at Pendulette. But keep in mind that if it was yeah. if the only two people running for president were AOC and Biden would never stop hearing about Biden saying that word. I mean, oh my god! Was, but between Trump, it's like okay, we'll forgive it for a little bit. So yeah. Oh my gosh! All right. Well, um, well, yeah. I did have the very odd experience yesterday of doing Fox with Ben Dominant. She's been on the, the podcast a couple of times, and it was supposed to be you know a, a regular like television hit. We booked it like a week in advance or so, and it turned out to be the day that the Chauvin verdict comes down. And I'm doing the appearance and at some point early on, and I'm, you know, I'm being spectacular. That's what I do. And at some point he's like, he has to interrupt me. And he's like, well, the vice president is about to speak. He's like, oh, okay. And I've been in that circumstance many times before, as I know you gentlemen probably have as well. And I'm like, okay, appearance over. Let me just get out of here. And like, could you just hold on? 
And what I got to do, which is kind of wild, oh, no. is in, in prime time is bookend the president and vice president, which is actually like quite interesting, especially because I thought that Joe Biden's and Kamala Harris's speeches were just so actually useless in terms of delivering substantive content. Certainly expressing sympathy for the families, um, for the family is totally appropriate. But like all of the racialist stuff and Joe Biden's declaration that black people like live in perpetual fear every time they have to leave their homes to go to the grocery store or like go down, like take a walk down the street is just insane. And they're in perpetual fear because they're afraid of being murdered by the police. <laughs> it's just completely insane. And he says it publicly and people applaud and drink this down as though it were true. And it is completely absurd to the extent anyone actually feels that way. They need to be committed. <laughs> That's what they need. They need therapy. They don't need the president of the United States endorsing these fables. So I do hope we can move past all of this. I hope people can be sane again, and I hope we can cultivate uh, a willingness to be brave and call bullshit, because that is just complete, straight-up bullshit. Like, I can't take it seriously. And if you believe that, I can't take you seriously either. So, <laughs> it's always, we'll good, to, it's always good to end on a really positive point of telling <laughs> listeners that you can't take them seriously. Well, uh, only the ones who are dumb. Yeah, all the d- we, so. we have some. We have some dummies <laughs> write dumb emails. No, we don't. I'm we got a couple, a but bit. not tons. Yeah, no, are I'm they going to come? Are, are you dummies going to come to Miami or what? What are you doing? Yeah, come to Miami. So we we do. Uh, I need to settle this up. We need to completely confirm the venue. We had one venue <laughs> that um, has declined us. Who's actually declined us? They said they will not. <laughs> They cannot host the Fifth Column podcast because of the disreputable characters that we've had on our podcast. Well, because of what we won't say who, but because of one totally boring, normal person. Try to guess. Why why can't we say who? Can't we say who? No. I don't know. Why? I mean, he's always in trouble. Well, I'll tell you what. We've been canceled already. And he's fine. No, I know. Let's try to to make some money off of this and say, if you subscribe to the Patreon... The first thing I'll do the next episode is like, you know who they wouldn't allow us? Yeah, to? Yeah, 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 that's, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll do it that way. You know, the reveal. Oh, my god. Stay gosh. tuned for the next episode of The Fifth Column <laughs> when you find out what racist psychopath got the fifth column canceled in Miami. Yeah. Racist psychopath oh. transphobe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Transphobe, too. Yeah. 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 So that was yeah. clearly but somebody who, the, they, they got the name of the podcast, Googled it, and they were like, going through checking that uh they're like we haven't heard of martin gurry don't know who that is don't know who that is oh that person that person <laughs> is bad is, transphobe like narrows it down only to maybe five <laughs> hundred <laughs> yeah i don't know man yeah. uh, we, we never did have gavin on in the early years yeah so. it was just all those episodes yeah. we did with steven crowder <laughs> <laughs> is that person still alive <laughs> Yeah, Prove me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't he, do, he did those videos where he's like, oh, God, what a loser. Ugh. And by the way, don't send me those emails like, you know what? Actually, if you watch him, no, he's a loser. Yeah, no. Stop. And if you, you yeah. stop, he's a loser. Yeah. And he's not funny. Ugh. Anyway. Mm. All right. We'll see you in Miami. All right. Bye. 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 We, we, we know of new methods of attack. <laughs> <laughs>